creeds and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference Podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Nick, and welcome back. It has been a bit of a time. Uh, roadmap for today, we'll be focusing primarily on a very long response to uh, Pastor Mike Winger on his series on women in ministry, as we were asked to by many different people as well as just giving you just kind of a life update on where we've been. It's been, like I said, a little while. So just happy to have y'all back with us for this uh, very, very long treat, hopefully a treat at least for y'all. Yeah, matter of perspective, perhaps. Um, But yeah, a lot of um, people requested. So we're going to go ahead and go through a response. Um, We were, you know, thinking we wanted to do more cover uh, Kostenberger, Schreiner, um, other folks like that. The reason why we're going in this direction is just we had a lot of requests, and it seems uh, Winger has gotten around quite a bit on the internet. So there you go. Yeah. But the most important question, aside from engaging with with Mike, uh, what are you sipping on today, love? Ooh, yes. All right. So um, today I've got Glengarry. Uh, it's a Highland single malt Scotch whiskey. I'll read it for you. First crafted by John and Alexander Manson in 1797, this 12-year-old single malt gains its distinctive Highland character from a classic marriage of bourbon and sherry casks, fresh heather, uh, poached pears, and just a hint of oak. So there you go. And I'm drinking basically what amounts to instant coffee with a little bit of milk. Well, here you go. I'm going to pour some of my Glengarry into your coffee. Cool. And now... Irish coffee now. Sweet. <laughs> Fitting for me. Yeah, if you want to find it, it's actually spelled uh, G-A-R-I-O-C-H. It's great. So, um, yes, please buy it. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, just We're not paid, by the way. No, no I just no. love this We're not whiskey. popular enough to have sponsors. Uh, so, life update real quick, where where we are. Uh, I, as, as many or some of you know, I was doing an interim senior pastor position. That, and that was about for six months. And then back on the grind looking for a, a new position and doing some contract work on the side, doing a little bit of online tutoring, or what we, we, we would call adjuncting here in the States for Ridley. Uh, and being a full-time dad and uh, trying to get back on my cat's good side. So that's kind of what I've, I've been up to. It's working. It's working. He's been warming up to you again. Well, it was early. Um, yeah, I've uh, just been, I've also been adjuncting, uh, not for Ridley, but for uh, uh, it's Houston Christian University. And then also uh, working full-time as an uh, administrator for a tech uh, school and um, also doing some fundraising um so just helped put on a gala recently it was my first time and then working um on that dissertation uh final two chapters yep so it's exciting life is moving and uh, we're just happy to be here and so what we're going to do for this this episode just to give you a, a quick you know thirty thousand foot view uh, we're not going to play everything that mike said because mike said a lot we will be playing quite a bit though and yeah. un Unfortunately, it's it's one of those where we have to. There's there's a lot out of that was stated out of context, and so it's going to take a while to go through some of these. Um, so, 
apologies. Yeah, and it's it's so we'll play clips and for you to hear so you can have some context of what we're responding to. And then uh, we'll offer our responses and away we go with that. So let's hop into that first clip. I've spent the last <clears throat> several months studying the topic of women in ministry and forgetting to turn my lights on as well. <laughs> anyway, here they are. This The last several months have been spent uh, really devoting my time to the topic of women in ministry. It's a, I think it's a very important issue. I think it's heavy. I think it hits your hearts, especially you ladies. It hits your lives in a really big way. This actually hurt my YouTube channel. I don't know if anybody noticed, but <laughs> this devoting my time to this and doing many less videos, a lot of videos I would have done I didn't do because... It just took so long. I had to read so much content. There was so much debate on this. And you're going to see, you likely have no idea how much debate there is among scholars and lay people on this topic. And we're going to delve right into it. We're going to get into all of the issues, look at everything the Bible teaches about it. This is going to be a series because there's so many different issues. And so this is the introduction. This first video, I'll get deep into major issues today, but it also serves as an introduction. I want you to know what you're getting into with this topic of women in ministry. All right. Well, um, just putting it there, uh, he spent the last several months on this and did a whole uh, series for you guys. Yeah. What's 13, 14 uh, YouTube videos so far? Let's say a dozen. Yeah. So what could go wrong? Someone spends several months on an issue and, you know, is now going to explain the scholarly debate to you in detail. Um I don't know. <laughs> well, and, and it's one of those where you have already, it, it takes a very long time to be an expert in literally anything, especially in the biblical studies realm. You need to know background materials. You need to know the original languages. You need to know how words work in an ancient context. And you need to know the worldview of, of the authors. And that takes years and years and years of study. And, you know, you've been studying this debate longer than I've, I have, but I, I don't even know if I'd call myself an expert and nor would I consider myself someone you should be citing every single day as a definitive resource on the subject. You know, we have opinions and we have strongly educated opinions, but there's something to be said about a few taking a few months to study an issue um, that I think should cause us all to kind of reflect on how much time is enough time and if three months or four months is sufficient time to release a massive YouTube series on an actual subject. It's enough time to write up a good summary paper for your uh, introduction class. Um, yeah, like a seminary class, like, you know, I've, I've been grading uh, essays. So yeah, that's about what you would take. You take about three three months to, to write a paper. A summary paper, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, just say, oh yeah, here, here are the different perspectives. Um, here's basically what I think about it. So, you know, you can take that amount of time and maybe read through maybe a couple sources yeah, a couple major sources you, you could take the time to be acquainted with the debate and and kind of get like a thirty thousand foot view but i i find it very difficult to believe that you can become an expert in something as well as disseminate the information that you've gleaned in a way that is helpful and productive in only a short this short amount of time. Yeah. So anyway, he thinks several months is a long time, and the reality is he's going to create a whole series to instruct people um, mm -hmm. and help them through understanding the debate. So that's problematic from our perspective already. Um, mm. it, it, it takes <laughs> it takes a lot longer to be to to have that sort of 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 uh, of awareness of the debate. And it's one of the, and as we'll see without the, within this entire video, there are multiple issues that arise from this. And it's not to say that you can't have a baseline opinion or assumption of what you believe, having never studied an issue. We all have them. 
but to spend only a few months on a specific subject when I mean I, I took with you I took about a year to study before I even felt comfortable fighting with people about it and arguing with people on the internet about my changed belief and even then I didn't have everything figured out and I certainly would have made a, a YouTube series or a podcast or wrote a book on the subject and someone would keep coming over and asking me to help respond <laughs> to oh yeah because I'm still people. learning you know yeah and so it's all this to say a few months at the end of the day is not a sufficient amount of time to to be uh, presenting yourself as a, as an academic or a guide to these sorts of issues. It takes far longer to do that, in my humble and opinion. And we'll say a guide. He's presenting himself as a guide, uh, is what he's doing. Yeah. So we'll move on to the next clip. Another reason why I'm going to get into this is not just because it's hugely impactful, but because you're not sure. Um, you still have to make choices about it, even though you don't know the right choices to make. And and I hated this for, for literally years. Women, you women who are listening to me now, would, would message my ministry and you'd ask me, Mike, um, you know, I, I'm being told I have like a teaching gift. I, I want to like serve the Lord. Should I become a pastor in my local church? Should I try to seek that? I'm not sure about what scripture says. And you would get the very disappointing response from me, right? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know the right answers for sure on this because I am hugely intimidated to tell you from the distance we're at, you know, what you can, can and can't do or shouldn't, shouldn't do on an, on an issue where like you, I wasn't sure. This is why I devoted months to studying the topic. I actually, be honest with you guys, I wanted to become egalitarian. Like I, I prioritized egalitarian scholars, right? Like the, the newest egalitarian scholarship. <laughs> this is the stuff I prioritized. I read Philip Payne's work and I read um, Linda Belleville and I've, I've read all of these sources, like scholarly sources. There's the pop level ones, which are lousy, but <laughs> the, the scholarly ones thinking that I was going to get something really good. I have not changed my mind. Fundamentally, I'm complementarian. Um, I am still soft, complementarian, but the, the, that's not the point. Because you didn't just click this video to find out where I'm at, I hope. You clicked it to find out where the Bible's at and how that applies to all the various situations of your life. But you're not sure. And I wasn't sure. And yet that doesn't stop you from having to make decisions. Here's you. I'm not sure, but I'm going to have to make a decision. Your church is like, should we allow this woman to do this ministry? We're not sure, but we still have to decide yes or no. And this is not a good place to be. So I want to provide more clarity, more certainty. All right. Um, so uh, he's presenting himself as though he wanted to become egalitarian um, and wasn't convinced by the best. And yet he's and after se studying for several months, he's going to go ahead and provide clarity uh, for everyone mm -hmm. um, who's searching the same questions. I'm going to say this from what I've listened to him and I've listened to this whole episode all the way through. I don't get the sense that he wanted to become egalitarian personally. Um, the sense I get of him is that he started out as complementarian, uh, extreme, dominantly complementarian, and he wanted to become more open-ended. And after reading through the different levels of scholarship and I'd say doing a lot of reading in, to what different scholars say, he ended up continuing to be still complementarian, where he started from, and a little bit more open-ended. So maybe now he identifies as a soft complementarian. Yeah, and I mean, you can look, I, I've followed Mike for a little while. I, I've watched his series on, say, Romans 16 or 1 Peter <clears> 3, <throat> where, you know, you have the submission and marriage text, you have the Junia passage in Romans 16, 7, you have Phoebe, and... 
I, I find I agree with you. I find it very difficult to believe. And it's one of those things I'm not inside his head, so I can't tell you, you know, I can't say, you know, all that. But looking at the actual evidence based on how he's talked about this issue in the past, I didn't I never got the impression that he was um, unsure, unsure. Or even um, like if you look at a section on the lost art of manliness with with one Peter and husband's leading, it's very standard complementarian stuff stated with conviction and passion and authority from behind a pulpit yeah. uh, pulpit you know, or a teaching lectern and so i find it honestly I, i'm with you i find it to be just I, I think it's just not a helpful way of framing it it's like if he said i want to be more open to this to this idea have more questions then that's one thing but mike was always a complementarian based on the evidence that i've seen from his other youtube series and so i, I think it's i just think this is not a helpful way of, of kind of communicating this it actually doesn't add clarity based on the evidence and given his own words uh, throughout this episode, it's, it's it's very clear that he approached from day one from a complementarian starting point and ended in one. Uh, even his understanding of the debate, as you'll see, seems to be very much framed in terms of a classic complementarian misunderstanding of egalitarian arguments on a very basic level. Yeah. And so that gives you and me great pauses as and wondering if this is if this is actually a if this is a healthy or helpful way of explaining himself. And so um, it's it's possible he he genuinely believes that. And I'm willing to grant that he believes that, but just based on the evidence and what you and I say in this video and in other videos that we've seen, um, it's, it's, a, it's a tough pill to swallow just based on the evidence. Yeah, one thing that is clear is after his several months of research, he thinks he is going to give you all certainty and clarity, his words, uh, on the subject, on this complex subject. So this is a secondary issue. This is the first thing I want to say about it. <laughs> this is totally a secondary issue, by which I mean, wherever you fall on this topic, you're still a Christian. Okay, whatever. This is not, look, sincere believers whose, whose walk with Jesus, I do not question. They are on both sides of this issue. And I mean that very genuinely. I'm not, I'm not afraid to throw down a gauntlet and say on this topic, like, this is not secondary. Like, this is, this is, I will die on this hill. Like, I'm not going to die on the hill of women in ministry. This, I'm just, I'm not. But I realize it's important. So we're going to talk about it. So there are believers on both sides genuinely seeking to honor Jesus. And even if some of them are wrong, I still don't think it's worth dividing over. I don't think it's worth dividing over. I don't think I should be like, let's say you're complimentarian and you, and you meet a woman and she's like, yes, I'm a pastor. You don't have to go like, I don't, can I talk to them? I mean, it's like, it's a secondary issue, but okay. Yes, it's secondary, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. So the other problem is this, and this is why I'm doing this series. It's huge in its application in your lives. Yeah. So I think uh, Mike is right. This is a secondary issue at the same time. Uh, the reality is there is inherent division if your default is complementarianism, then by default, uh, over 50% of the church does not have full participation within the church on a leadership and authority level. And there's also debate on how far you press that. You know, you could be as soft a complementarian as you want, or you could be the most patriarchal person as you want. There still is that sort of thing of getting consistency across complementarianism. I mean, there is a huge debate in the Southern Baptist Convention on whether a woman can be a pastor and be called a pastor, even if she's not an elder or, or a senior pastor or what have you. So, And then endless discussions over what someone can and can't do. Yeah. Uh, so the reality is it is by default exclusionary. And so it's kind of one of those things where you can say it's not something to divide over, but the reality is the default is to separate out a good portion of the church that uh, does not have the same gender. Well, and, and another issue is Mike uh, prides himself on clarity. 
And I think this language of not dividing over actually makes the issue far less clear. Because if, if Mike won't, for example, in his church, you know, he, I don't know if he still is a pastor, but people call him pastor. But if he's pastor at his church, um, he is dividing from lots of different people who would seek to be part of the church or even come to the church as pastors or even if they're hiring a, a new pastor or senior pastor or his replacement or whatever or elder or elder then um he is dividing the church by saying no these people are not are not permitted based on my understanding of scripture and so it's one of those where as a pastor i feel like he should actually know this is there's a two-sided face to this i'm not talking about two-sided in terms of dishonesty but there's two aspects to it one is this does divide the church like, because if you, you can't, you can do missions work with people, you can do theological education with people, but whether or not a woman can speak from behind a pulpit or a lectern on a Sunday morning, that's a yes or no well, question. Well, and in some complementarian churches you, you and traditions, you can't yeah. actually uh, teach either. Yeah, and, and I do think this is, an issue, this is an issue worth dividing over in the sense of, of how the local church functions. This is not an issue of orthodoxy division. But it is an issue of orthopraxy, how you actually function and, and work in the local church. And I can say that as a pastor for almost five years, this issue is hugely important in that. So on the one hand, I get his point about yeah. you shouldn't divide with fellow Christians about this, but you are dividing with the church and other churches or either other denominations by taking a perspective on this issue, no matter what position you take. Yeah. At the same time, uh, he's wanting people not to start, oh, no, I can't talk to so-and-so because they have different beliefs than me. And, you know, I think that's good. Uh and again, I, I think overall people, especially if they start from a position of more power, tend to not realize that the default is de facto against uh, another group. Well, and the entire debate has been pigeoned as not what 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 is the nature of the church, but is what can women do in church, which already skews the debate. And as, as we'll see with his 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 presentation of the evidence and material, it biases the conversation because it, it assumes certain languages or certain words or lexemes have a kind of common denominator. Uh, and so it's one of those where you're kind of left going like, I'm not sure this is actually as helpful as he thinks it is, even though I'm happy for him to be willing to call egalitarians fellow Christians. I'll take what I can get at this point from my fellow friends on this. Yeah, and it, the, really, this goes beyond Mike. Uh, it this the reality is this is how the debate's framed. Can a woman dot 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 dot? Right. We never ask. I mean, for example, Romans sixteen as a fun example. No one ever goes was Andronicus a an apostle. No one ever asks about it. the poor guy gets left out. There was an article that tried to do it and it kind of failed because it basically was just boilerplate complementarianism. It didn't. The article really didn't work in my opinion. But point being, no one ever asks what Andronicus does. No one ever asks about that sort of thing. It's always about Junia. And so I find the whole debate is itself very skewed in how we even approach this issue. Yeah. And for guys out there, just imagine that you just continually had to go through life or your church being questioned all the time. There's a question mark over your head wherever you go. Yeah. So you're constantly wondering, can I do this? Can I do that? Um, and, oh, you really need to think about this issue before you consider... God's calling. So it's not just about you and does God call you? Um, it's not just about you perceiving the scriptures. It be, it takes on a whole nother level where you have to constantly be questioning yourself over and over and over again. And I think uh, Mike will even say later, that's not a healthy dynamic in and of itself. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the question is, are you in sin? Am I sinning, sinning against God? Am I, am I misleading myself? Am I self-deceived in my understanding of scripture? I mean, those are sorts of questions most guys will never have to engage with, but every woman in ministry, whether she's evangelical, fundamentalist, progressive, centrist, wherever has to have that sort of 
discussion within herself, you know, with scripture. And so it's one of those where I just find the whole debate itself not being divisive. It's like, well, the debate is divisive. And that's, I'm not even necessarily at odds with that idea at all. I'm not talking about the church being divided over in the sense of we can't get along and do missions or work together. But in terms of actual church ministry and leadership, it is divisive. And I think rightly so at this point. And yes, there's been more written on this issue. Uh, it's hotly debated than any other issue, probably in Christian scholarship in recent years. Um, but we're going to get into all that stuff. So do a self-assessment like I did. Here's my recommendation. As we step into this, before I go over the seven errors that people, you know, to keep them from even reading the Bible on this issue, um, do a self-assessment and ask yourself this. Not what your view is. You're egalitarian, complementarian, or unsure. Ask yourself this. What view do I want to have? Because you just want to be aware if there's if you are pulling yourself towards a direction. I did this assessment, and as I really was honest with myself, I was like, I want to be egalitarian. Maybe it's my culture. Maybe it's it's my perception of, of women's rights or something. I just want to be egalitarian. So I had to put that out there and recognize that. But as I read the, the egalitarians, it made it impossible for me to do that. So we'll we'll get into those issues as we as we go. So... I wasn't aware that Mike Winger's culture was a church culture was an egalitarian culture. I didn't realize he went to a egalitarian church. Well, you know, he's a United Methodist or UCC. No, he's Calvary Chapel. Like Calvary Chapel, I can speak to this. Having grown up there, incredibly patriarchal. Some churches are nicer than others, but that's been that's predominantly the experience at Calvary Chapel. And here, here's the reality for just how a lot of egalitarian, uh, or, or sorry, egalitarian and complementarian culture shares as just being evangelical. We do tend to frame things in terms of the culture out there versus us in here, scripture versus culture. Yeah. We're constantly on guard against, quote, culture. Uh, what I find on both, you know, sides, uh, that fall under the rubric of uh, evangelical, and we count ourselves as evangelical, mm -hmm. uh, is they don't realize that they are extremely influenced by culture, their own subculture, their own church culture. Mm -hmm. And again, it tends to be very anti and uh, antithetical to what's going on, what's perceived to be going on around them. Well, and, and here's the thing too, if Mike became an egalitarian while at Calvary Chapel, that would be, I mean, devastating interpersonally. Like, I mean, I know I got shunned quite a bit at Calvary Chapel when I questioned certain views within the broad range of Christian orthodoxy. And so it's like, and I, and I don't buy the commentary about culture or, or kind of what he's kind of implying about the motives of others yeah. or the, the worldview of others. Because for instance, would a PCOSA member, someone who's grown up in the PCOSA or the, or the uh, United Church of Christ or the United Methodist Church um, be more, more or less inclined to be egalitarian or complementarian? What about Calvary Chapel, which is staunchly complementarian? What about the Assemblies of God, which tend to be egalitarian? What about the Nazarenes? What about the Wesleyans? What about the Baptists? And so it's one of those where I think this sort of commentary is is just naive. And I'm not trying to be rude, but it's it, it doesn't actually engage with the subculture that you find yourself a part of in terms of a church home and a church family, a church denomination, a church order. And it doesn't actually engage with kind of where you come from. It's more... It more tries to put yourself outside of it without recognizing, no, I've been deeply shaped and formed by these values, whether I'm PCUSA or United Methodist or Southern Baptist. I've been deeply influenced by this, and this is all I know. This is the air I breathe. And the, the language I use is unassumed because I don't have to explain it because we all agree on these certain words. And so I, I think I would really push back on, on Mike on that and say I, I really think there needs to be more clarity and more self-reflection on the role of 
church upbringing and where we find ourselves in the church as well. Yeah, and it's important overall to truly bring yourself to the scriptures when you're even reading them or other people and realize, hey, this is actually where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. Maybe I would like to be the kind of person that wants to believe the other view or would like to be the other, the kind of person who's open or, you know, a lot of people want to be quote objective or neutral, but the reality is that's oftentimes not where we are at. Yeah. And just to reiterate the same point about him wanting to be egalitarian, I just frankly find no evidence for that based on what he said about egalitarianism uh, on his YouTube channel in his series on First Peter 3 and uh, series on Romans 16. Um, and so I, it, in my mind, I, I just, it, it's entirely possible he believes that. And true, he came to that conclusion while doing the study or before the study. I'm perfectly willing to believe that. I just don't have evidence for it outside of his word based. And it seems to be in contradiction with his, with the evidence that he says in 1 Peter. So I'd actually be curious to see what he uh, says about those passages now in light of his 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 more, his three or four month study on the actual subject. Yeah. So again, like framing it too in terms of culture and women's rights, those are complementarian talking points. They're not really... Uh, necessarily egalitarian talking points per se. And mm -hmm. again, the broader evangelical culture is to be antithetical to the culture around it. But in terms of the actual gender debate, egalitarians are, are not talking about culture much. Uh, we, I would say, don't share much in common in terms of what's around us currently. Uh, we're not, we don't really fit in with the current day wave of feminist uh, movements, yeah. which I would say arguably probably aren't feminist anymore. No. Um, some some uh, evangelicals are not aware too that the broader culture has moved way past liberalism. Like it, it's it's not even addressing liberalism anymore. Right. And then the other thing is women's rights. Uh, that was a talking point of uh, the very early uh, women's temperance movements. Uh, yep. Again, uh, we've just exited from you know getting. Uh, freeing people from slavery, and now we want to get women to also be able to vote as well. Yeah. That that was back then. That uh, that battle was won, and so mm -hmm. uh, we really talk more about uh, female participation, full participation in the church, and mutuality in interpersonal relationships. Well, and, and for those interested, go look up Catherine Bushnell, look up Sarah Grimke, look up the early, quote, Christian feminist. We would call them fundamentalists based on their kind of theology. You can see my interview with- Yeah, Dr. first wave feminist. Yeah, you look up my interview with Dr. Mimi Haddad on the New Testament, the on this channel, uh, or on the New Testament Theologist YouTube channel. We talk about it. We talk about the early feminist movement. And we talk about where they came from and all that they had, so- And I wrote a um, article called Equating Feminists. Yep. It, Feminisms, there we go. Yep. Excellent article, by the way. Didn't you win an award on that one, for that one? Uh, yes. 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 It was a long time ago. But, long time. And yeah. you can find it uh, at Christian for Biblical Equality's website. And actually, just before I forget, there, there, there is an example of Mike's complementarianism, which seems pretty self-assured, pretty confident, and pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. So allow me to play a clip from his uh, First Peter 3 series on male headship and wifely submission. Now, with that in mind, the idea of submission to a husband shouldn't be that big of a thing in concept. I'm sure obviously it's, every marriage is difficult when it gets to actually doing it. But as far as the concept goes, it should make a lot of sense. Oh, okay. So I submit over here, I submit over here, I submit over there. And over in marriage, this is how it works. Wives in submission to their husbands. It is with this attitude of I submit to God in everything that it should not be a big deal. But yet it is. But let me just first establish the principle. So if you would keep your place in 1 Peter 3, but turn 
with another one of your wonderful fingers that God has given you over to Ephesians 5.22. Ephesians 5.22. Now, 5.21 is the one that says submitting to one another. So there's a context of mutual submission. But in the marriage relationship, there is, there is a, uh, a calling of God. This is not our opinions. This is what God has declared for the wife to submit to the husband. And so it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Then in case you thought it was a typo, Colossians 3.18. Look at Colossians 3.18. Well, I'm glad he brought in uh, verse 21 on that one. Uh, But uh, unfortunately, uh, that wives submit to your husbands bit, the submit's not actually there uh, in verse 22. It's borrowed in our English from verse 21. Yep. And so it's, I'm glad he provided the context, but I'm kind of uh, upset that, you know, the actual context of the verse uh, plays no real role in his exegesis of the passage. But all it's the- cause, I, I think because he doesn't realize, he thinks it's a break. He thinks that's the section that came before. And then it breaks into another section on uh, marriage. I think that's what he believes there. But I don't want to get lost. We've we've done a whole thing. And we'll we'll talk about it more specifically later. But all this to say, he sounds pretty confident, sounds pretty assured, sounds pretty complimentarian to me. And this was a few years ago. And so people change. People have all this. But this is evidence to show that, hey, dude, maybe... Maybe you're not as as unbiased as as you say you are. But I mean, at the end of the day, we all have our biases and prejudices. It's just about being consistent and open and honest with them and maybe studying for a long time before we're actually making YouTube videos about the subject. All right. So next, he's going to give you the path forward uh, for what he's going to cover. Number one uh, was it's about bypassing the Bible or bad logic. Essentially, he warns you about being egalitarian despite his rhetoric prior uh, he fra- we believe he framed it in a highly slanted, um, maybe pejorative way. Number two, Genesis 1 through 3 doesn't support women in, leader- in leadership is his position. And then number three. Video number three, women in, in leadership in the Old Testament. Now, egalitarian scholars will often survey through the Old Testament to show you how many women have been in prominent positions and leadership positions throughout the Old Testament. You can think of like Deborah, right? Of the, who was one of the judges. And so we're, we're going to look through those. We're going to follow this egalitarian sort of survey of scripture to examine those things. Um, Linda Belleville, one scholar, says that women are affirmed in spiritual leadership roles in the Old Testament and that it's neglected. This truth is neglected by many complementarians. I actually agree. This truth is neglected, but we need to understand it carefully and we'll go through it. All right, so problem one, of course, uh, Linda Belleville is his source for the Old Testament. Uh, Linda Belleville is a New Testament scholar. So again, it's little things like this where you can tell there's not that depth of understanding. Um, That would be kind of a basic thing. Uh, Maybe don't use her for the Old Testament. Well, there's there's many technical commentaries you could look at for this. For example, John Golden Gay's got a major commentary on it. I'm sure Trumper Longman's done a bunch. Uh, Brueggemann, you've got all sorts of, you know, Genesis commentaries that, you know, address these sorts of questions. And so it kind of just goes like, I'm, I, I like Belleville, but she's, yeah. and, and her chapter I thought was perfectly fine, but there's a difference between Belleville being a New Testament scholar and actually looking at what Old Testament she's scholars say. She's an excellent New Testament scholar. Yeah. Uh, so use her for the New Testament. Uh, next, he does cover verse number four that he's going to do women in New Testament. And sorry, we have to skip through some of these. Uh, it's just, it's a lot of content. And we think um, some of the stuff that we might critique that we have to skip over will be covered 
or come up again later. So yeah, when he actually addresses the passages and goes through them in uh, in his own way. Yeah, right. you'll see what we're talking about. It'll come up again. So number five, the fifth video in the series will be about there being no male or female in the Galatians passage, Galatians three twenty eight. It says that in Christ there is not male. There is no male or female. Um, and this is like an ultimate proof for many egalitarians. Look, if there's no male or female, the whole debate is over. You can't have gender distinctions in roles. End of story. Um, because this is such a huge issue, it'll be a shorter video, but I will do a whole video on Galatians 3.28, the trump card for the egalitarian side. All right, and so we have a, another classic uh, complementarian misunderstanding of fundamental misunderstanding of egalitarianism because that's where he's coming from. Uh, a lot of complementarians think that there's no distinction whatsoever between men and women in an egalitarian perspective. That's not the case. Uh, so I'm just going to point out that that's not what we believe. Yeah. Just not in terms of their, we just don't believe in gender hierarchy. Right. It's not that they disappear um, completely and now there's no longer any difference between men and women. I it's mean, just not a hierarchical one. Well, we can look at the differences between men and women and the little one who's three years old running around downstairs playing with grandma and grandpa. And so it's like, I, 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 it's one of those where I wonder if a more a new a more nuanced understanding of what egalitarians actually believe would have gone for would have helped Mike's case be uh, be a little more strengthened. Yeah, and the other thing is he also has another classic misunderstanding of uh, the egalitarian position on the way the way uh, Galatians functions. Uh, just a spoiler: Galatians does not function the way First Timothy does for complementarians. And actually, I wanted to read you. A section from one of my favorite dissertations that was given at TED's by Douglas Walker. He was a complementarian at the time, I believe. Uh, his dissertation is called Women in Ministry, the Logical Core of the Debate. And it's, you know, again, TED's 2011. Uh, this is his footnote on page 93. And I just thought that he very wonderfully portrayed a key difference. What, and what, what's the number of the footnote? Uh, 139. Okay. Many view Galatians 3.28 as the egalitarian counterpart to 1 Timothy 2.11-12, but the two passages function differently. 1 Timothy 2.11-12 speaks directly to ecclesial roles, and a conclusion about ecclesial roles can be formed directly from the passage without having to supply a missing premise. Interpreters draw different conclusions from 1 Timothy 2.11-12 only because they interpret the passage differently. Because a set of ecclesial gender roles can be directly obtained from 1 Timothy 2, 11-12, it establishes the framework for further discussions on the, role, on the roles. Galatians 3.28 does not operate in this way. Rather, some intervening logical premise must be supplied to draw a conclusion about ecclesial roles. Interpreters draw different conclusions from Galatians 3.28 because they supply different premises. Galatians 3.28 does, however, stand as the clearest supporting text for gender equality. And that's his uh, position. Um, so all this to say, again, they're not, it's kind of like First Timothy is almost the passage for complementarians to go to. It's not that they don't, I, I would say Genesis as well would be another main passage. It's not like they don't think there's other passages that support their points, but First Timothy really is kind of the linchpin passage. Galatians 3.28 does not function in that same way. I would say for the egalitarian perspective, it tends to be a lot more of a holistic approach to scripture. And we think that there's several passages that teach on it. 
Right. And, and you've got this issue, too, of, of, of Mike's conflation of language, uh, you know, roles, language, which he never defines. He never explains what a role is. Um, and we'll get into that actually when we talk about uh, Rebecca Grotice, the late Rebecca Grotice and his, his, site, his uh, use of her. Um, but I, I, I think most egalitarians don't claim that, uh, would never claim that Galatians 3.28 is the trump card or, is, or no. is the singular big text. It is a big supporting text and has a lot of theological impact, as I think literally every Christian who's commented on the passage would recognize. And so I, I think it deserves a little more weight than kind of this dismissive hand wave about it. Um, he just doesn't understand the debate, really. Uh, and again, it's not, it's not comparable in the same way. Yeah. is the way first timothy's used yeah and I, and for the record i'm not a fan of pitting texts against each other yeah. you know but i i frankly see a lot of complementarians doing this sort of thing where don't confuse me with galatians 3 28 when i have my 1 timothy 2 12 and i and i think we need to be uh as galatians 3 28 is more um more expansive and holistic in our reading of scripture rather than picking our favorite proof text that already supports our predetermined view that we love to have the next point Mike is going to cover in his series is number six. Husbands are the head of their wives. And he says that the egalitarian rejects or redefines it. Uh, he also says there's some severely flawed scholarship here. Um, again, he's done this for a couple months and he has very strong opinions on the quality of scholarship that he's read. Uh, number seven, he's going to cover 1 Corinthians 11 and head coverings. Eight, 1 Corinthians 14, silent women being silent in the church. And then number nine. Video number nine. Notice how long I'm taking to get there. Video number nine. We're looking at the First Timothy 2 passage. This is the passage for the complementarians, right? Galatians, that there's no male or female. That's the passage for the egalitarians. But for the complementarians, the, the passage is First Timothy 2. And we're going to dig into this. This is where he says he does not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And so we're going to dig into that in great detail. Many complementarians see it as the ultimate passage. Um... And egalitarians will have very, very different interpretations of those passages. I mean, again, Mike, Mike still thinks Galatians 3.28 is the passage for egalitarians. I, I think for me, I, I just, I've never found that persuasive. I think it's a big part of the discussion, especially for framing ministry and theology and, and the church and the body and all these sorts of questions. But my first thought is... is it's, a it's a longer passage if you consider the whole context. Yeah, if you consider the whole letter, you know, the, this is a much bigger passage. And so I kind of just, I, I, I think this is tropism. I think it's it's one of those where I just, oh, and the cat's scratching. Uh, I think it's one of those where a, a little more engagement with egalitarian literature and egalitarian persons would have kind of alleviated this sort of, I, I would say, one-sided commentary. Uh, Mike is trying to be as clear and charitable as possible. I'm here, he's he's done okay in some parts of this, but... This part, I think, has been really um, unfortunate. Yeah, and by the way, this is just um, him saying what he's going to cover later. And by the way, that was not a metaphor. The cat really was scratching um, yeah. next to the couch, but not on the couch. This is the thing I wanted to focus on today after that long, long intro <laughs> is that a lot of people are bypassing the Bible on this issue. I don't say that as a rhetorical like, haha, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Let me give you examples and let's walk through the specifics of these things. It's going to take some time. Some people hold their views, not because the Bible, but because of philosophical beliefs they bring to the Bible on the topic of women in ministry. We could be committed to beliefs before we've ever consulted the scriptures. An example of this is how some people approach the Trinity. They don't believe the Trinity is real. They don't believe the, that the Bible teaches the Trinity. But, but when you really talk to them, you find out the reason is because they think the Trinity is philosophically impossible. No, you can't have three in one. You can't have three in one. That's not, it doesn't work. It's not allowed. 
And that rule is why they don't think the Bible teaches it. And you find this out when you really push and you ask some questions. Many people, this is how they approach the Bible on this topic. Women in ministry, there can't be limitations because A, B, C, D, because of these seven things. See, this is what I, I mentioned earlier about philosophical bias. Uh, Mike has not laid out his philosophical perspective. He has not communicated anything in the sense of his interpretive methodology, his his way of reading scripture, um, his own assumptions that he's bringing to this and his reading of egalitarians. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's said quite a bit. Oh, he just doesn't realize he said it, well, that yeah. he's a complimentarian reading as a complementarian. Yeah, and it, yeah, yeah, fair enough. But uh, for example, his use of role language. This is, I, I get all my complementarian friends about this all the time. It's like the uncritical use of role language is something that is assumed and is not actually explored or even verified in terms of how words actually function. Yeah, it's assumed within a very particular complementarian context uh, where role tends to have a, this is a part of uh what, it's not just a function that you do. I think they might want to say it's just a function, but when it becomes tied to your person, so women, because they're women, will do this, and yeah. men, because they're men, will do that. You know, men by nature, it becomes a men by nature are leaders, and women by nature are more subservient. They don't like to say, always say nature, because that has more, they do sometimes, actually, but it has ontological implications that they want to deny. Mm-hmm. But all this to say, uh, the way they use the term role is not typical um, anywhere else outside of complementarianism. Yeah, I mean, and, it, and it's, I mean, Kevin Giles and others have, have laid this to bear in terms of how the complementarians have utilized complement. And the fact that they call themselves complementarians is not a fair, it, it's, lingu- it's, it's, it's not a fair representation of the actual debate because egalitarians would be considered complementary to, we believe men and women are complementary to one another. Yeah. And so it's one of those where if Mike had just taken the time to even assess, you know, the, the, the use of assumed language in this debate and all the theological freight he's brought with it, you know, roles and this and that, I, I think you'd be in a much better spot for having this conversation. But as of right now, there, there's I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting here going, like, there's just really nothing of substance here outside of boilerplate complementarianism that is assumed rather than are argued for. Well, and it's interesting. Some people bring their philosophical b- beliefs with them. Um one of my favorite podcasts, uh, done by a couple of attorneys, Confession Through Projection, is what they would say. <laughs> Women in ministry, if your answer to this question is, I know I'm called. I know I'm called. I'm called to be in ministry. I don't care what the Bible says. You've bypassed the Bible. This is one of the major bypasses. The first one I want to talk about, which is when you, when you think your life experience answers the question of what the Bible says. This is an issue we make, we a mistake we make all the time in various other ways. My advice is for a woman who's in ministry, even if you feel like you're called, is set aside all those concerns for now. Just evaluate the passage in their in a, in each passage's historical and biblical context, so you can keep yourself from having conclusions from outside the Bible that you bring to the Bible and force into the text. So the first major mistake is when we say, "I have life experience that answers this question." You know, a woman pastor ministered to me the truth and love of God. So therefore, women in ministry is totally cool. I got saved listening to a woman pastor. I'm not saying you're wrong. I just want you to recognize this, Christian, as you approach the Bible with that belief, you have bypassed the Bible. You have your conclusion before reading the Bible. That is the issue I'm concerned about. That's the issue. It sounds like based on what Mike said, he's bypassed the Bible here. But I'm ha ha ha. Uh, I mean, the reality is we all bring our experience with us. Uh, I'm glad that his um, 
I don't want to say fictional, but the people perhaps he has in mind that approach from their experience at least know what their experience has been. Mm -hmm. And the reality is a lot of people go back to the drawing board because of their personal experience. So a lot of people just took complementarianism for granted because that's what they were taught. That's what they grew up with. I did, yeah. Yeah, and then they see, oh, you know, a woman uh, preached or maybe this young woman that's in my class is very gifted. Um, I need to think through this all over again. And then they look in the, at the evidence afresh with fresh eyes. What that is, is, or maybe someone feels called to ministry. And so they're going to go to the scripture to take a closer look. What that is, is bringing your experience with you to the text and engaging the world theologically. Um, that's not wrong. Yes, it is a mistake, I believe, to say, this is my experience, and so I'm going to ignore what the text says or read into it. And again, everyone across the board in terms of position at some point or other is guilty of that. Mm -hmm. um, that's what we do. That's what all human beings do when they are convicted of something and they look for, conf we'll call it confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. um, surprise, surprise, they find within the text or in their um, broader context exactly what they um, assumed. So, yeah. Oh, and, and no egalitarian disagrees with the idea that life experience gets to trump, you know, your, your, the biblical text. But life experience can help you maybe ask better questions of the biblical text. Yeah, we're not. So the, the feminist, uh, so maybe more um, secular feminist or even um, I'd say liberal, classical liberal feminist uh, setup would be hermeneutics of suspicion or reading from the vantage point of women's experience. Mm -hmm and re reinterpreting um, hierarchical text in light of that. That's not the egalitarian approach. Uh, egalitarians are basically just classic evangelicals. They approach with the same set of assumptions. They just don't see the same and reach the same conclusions based off of what they see in the text. Well, and you've also got this advice is odd coming from a guy who's only done a few months of research on this and feels compelled to tell other people. We're not bitter at all, no. <laughs> telling people that, you know, this is what you've bypassed the Bible. It's like, my friend, you've spent a few months studying this. And I, I think just more humility on this point would have gone a lot further. It, it comes across as just kind of patronizing, unnecessarily so, I think. Yeah, I think the level of certainty and instruction uh, is just not warranted. And that's why we keep harping back to a few months. Uh, it's, it's just not warranted. And again, I, I don't know um, how much uh, experience he has engaging with uh, e uh, maybe egalitarians minus um, maybe some younger woman that's trying to sort through her calling. And frankly, here's another way to look at it. Um, women tend to get a lot of blame for this route. A lot of men kind of assume, I feel called by God, mm -hmm. and they go for it. Yeah, they, there's no question mark for them. My perspective is no, don't bypass your experience or quote, put it on, try to think you're putting it on hold when approaching the text. Bring it with you. Listen to what the scriptures actually have to say and let it challenge the perspective that you bring with you. Um, really, I think none of us are really going to ever become perfectly objective or uh, neutral. That's just not what human beings are, um, nor do I think it's an ideal to go for. Um, I think what we got to do is just realize that we all come with our own con with from our own context we all have our own perspectives, we have our own biases, we all have our own shortcomings, strengths weaknesses and be a little bit more cognizant of it. So maybe being a little more cognizant of one's experience in context and taking it with you or 
just full heartedly towards the text and just seeing what the text um, speaks into um, uniquely would be a better way to go. And if I'm going to bring in life experience, having engaged and served with, you know, women in ministry, I honestly, I, I, I don't know who, I have not heard this sort of thing said that, you know, oh, I, I'm, I know I'm called, so I don't care about what the Bible says. Most of the women I know that, that serve or have served in ministry did not believe they were called did not believe they were called for ministry in the sense of whether it's pastoral leadership or eldership or what have you, until they basically went back to the Bible and discovered that, oh, the Bible seems to not promote what I've been taught, but promotes me as a woman empowered by the Spirit to perform and lead and govern and do all these sorts of things. And so I've heard it before. Yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a, there was a teenage girl that said she felt called to ministry mm -hmm. and that she really, really, really felt called to ministry. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we went ahead and opened up the Bible next. Um, so again, I've heard that before, but again, like a young, very young person trying to perceive their call is more the context. Yeah. I just, I don't, I've never seen that. It's you normal. Know, I've never seen that. I've, ba- <laughs> you, you know, I don't care about what the Bible says. And I'm like every, every egalitarian, yeah, I know, not every, that part. every woman I've ever seen in ministry and served with a ministry has literally never said that. In fact, they, they did not believe they were called to minister until they examined the scriptures for themselves in light of, you know, the historical, grammatical, theological context the scriptures are written in. So I, I don't, I guess I just, I, I just don't buy this paradigm that Mike's putting forward here. Yeah. If you, or on the flip side, the complementarian could say, well, women have frequently been false teachers. Look at all the false teachers in history that were women. Here's what, here, my answer to you is this. Your experience should not guide your reading of the Bible. You've bypassed the Bible because you decided ahead of time what it was going to say. So just a quick comment here. How many complementarians have life experiences pushing them to complementarianism due to false female teachers? Um, I mean, like, did you get trapped in some sort of cult somewhere? I, I just don't know that that's the dominant experience um, by a lot of complementarians. Um, so again, I, I think he's struggling to find a counterbalance here or a comparable example. And it's just that he's not quite, he hasn't, maybe thought through how much uh, complementarian culture actually might bias one towards uh, an egalitarian reading. And so this is the example that he comes up against. Although, hey, you know, there could be a lot of um, female cult leaders out there that I'm just unaware of. Oh, well, yeah, there's there's always someone out there that's crazy. Looks at Problem number two, huge mistake number two, that um, women in ministry is simply a result of the evils of feminism. <laughs> okay. I know I, I told my wife today before I, a couple hours ago, I was getting ready for the stream. I said, I'm going to make half the world angry today. <laughs> but now that I'm thinking about it, I might make the whole world angry. Okay. Um, hear me out. I'm not saying whether that's true or false. What I'm saying is if you come to the table of the discussion of women in ministry, believing that the evils of feminism are the major issue here, you have bypassed the Bible and you can no longer let the Bible lead you to a place that you consider the evils of feminism. You've bypassed the Bible. Stow it for now. Set it aside. Examine the scripture. And then you can ask questions like, how do I explain my experience? How do I explain my concerns about, say, modern feminism or something like that? Yeah, here's a better, I think, a better example of what might be a little bit more typical in a complementarian context. Uh, They bring with them a lot of assumptions on feminism. The feminization of the church is a big big thing, you know? Or, you know, again, evils of feminists. Um, uh, maybe they read a lot of Wayne Grudem. Um, again, I, my experience is they oftentimes maybe don't entirely know what it is um, per se, uh, or you know the differences within, or maybe that we're not really even dealing with actual feminists anymore. But 
I think this is a good example uh, by him to bring up. And, you know, I, I, I would say to that person, though, don't check it at the door. Bring it with you to the Bible. Bring your questions. Because um, otherwise, it's just going to haunt you in bizarre ways. And lo and behold, you will read in the scriptures exactly what you expect to see. So I say um, bring your concerns about the evils of feminism with you to the text and uh, let the Bible uh, speak to you. Issue number three. It is the evils of patriarchy that we're fighting here. Oh, it goes both ways. Okay, so the egalitarians will often say um, the what we see with the um, complementarians and some of them even refuse to call them compliment. They call them traditionalists or patriarchalists. And they use these words in pejorative terms, pejorative ways. So the egalitarians, many of them I've read, okay, this is just permeating the writings of egalitarians. Not all of them, not everyone, but it's so frequent that you can't avoid it. It's the idea that the reason why there are gender differences in churches is because of the, quote, evils of patriarchy, right? Privilege and power and position and all these, all these buzzwords. Here's the problem. Even if you're right, you can't read the Bible anymore because you've decided ahead of time that the Bible must lead me away from the evils of patriarchy. My biblical rule is evil patriarchy. I don't like it. I reject it. The Bible can't support it. Now I'm going to go open the Bible and find a way to support my conclusions. Now, this has led some egalitarian scholars to come to one of two conclusions. Uh, more of the evangelical ones who I've been reading, they'll conclude none of these passages teach anything like the evils of patriarchy. But there are plenty who also will conclude that the Bible does teach those things and the Bible's wrong and immoral in those ways. And I've full on read supposedly Christian scholars and leaders saying the Bible teaches it and it's evil. And I would say that's because you've decided ahead of time that you have a blanket condemnation on what you call the evils of patriarchy. And then you read the Bible with that belief firmly entrenched and immovable. And you were not able to even consider letting it lead you wherever it would lead you. So this, this is going to kill you. Whether you call it the evils of feminism or the evils of patriarchy, that's just a way of bypassing the Bible. All right. Well, to start out, let's just look at the definition of patriarchy here from Merriam-Webster. So I'm, you know, intentionally not looking for much nuance, just the, um, con the usual understanding of the term. So we've got a society or institution organized according to the principles of practice of patriarchy. That's not helpful. Broadly, control by men of a disproportionately large share of power. Okay. And then a social organization marked by the supremacy of the father in the clan or family, the legal dependence of wives and children, and the reckoning of descent and inheritance in the male line. So that would be a patriarchal understanding of um, either culture or the family structure or even the legal structure. So complementarians would fall into a patriarchal understanding of maybe a softer uh, patriarchal understanding of the family and how it's organized with the uh, husband as the head in the English or German or maybe even Hebraic understanding of what head means. So the husband is the head of the family. And uh, also I would say in terms of who shares um, power in the church, in the local church. So it's going to be men who are in charge, who are elders or such. So by they would be within the um, broader grouping of patriarchy. Um, however, they do not have control over society. And yep. so they live in a more egalitarian society. So there you go. There's your egalitarian culture. The laws are, are a lot more even handed towards men and women. 
And you also have the issue of, I mean, until very recently, the term was traditionalist or patriarchy, patriarchalist. I mean, complementarianism as a term being used in the way, say, like Mike Winger would use it or Wayne Grudem would use it, uh, is a very, very recent phenomenon. Like that was in the 1970s and 80s when the Danvers Statement and George Knight and all of them kind of you know, constructed this term and this movement, or at least specifically so. And they, while they reject patriarchy and patriarchalism and traditionalism and all these sorts of things, you, you can't just ignore the thousand, you know, the traditional reading and the traditional things that kind of people um, have said and used throughout this time. Well, and I'd say complementarians aren't necessarily the traditionalist view perspective. Again, like you said, they're, they're fairly new on the scene as well. So, right. you know, on that front, um, I would say they're not traditionalist but yeah anyway um so we're we're you know we're like quibbling over words here but yeah we would actually disagree with mike um that patriarchy is um not explanatory of complementarianism i would say it's the broader category but i mean i get it if people have certain associations maybe um maybe let's bring back the cult maybe you know they think of a cult or maybe a society at large where, you know, women literally can't inherit um, or can't get a credit card uh, without their husband's permission. That was my grandma in this country, by the way, um, before. Uh, so, yeah, I can see that. And so maybe just use different words if you're talking to someone and they're especially resistant to the term Um just call them complementarians because that's what they like to be called. Oh, same here. I, I have no problem using the term, provided we understand what we're saying. I'm just saying there is a, a tradition and reason in history of, of why these terms have been used in the in the. I mean, there is also the biblical patriarchy movement now, uh, and so it's not as if uh, the, these terms aren't still being used as self descriptors of what some people believe the Bible teaches. And so there's that aspect as well. Yeah. And so people reacting to it um, or responding to it have every right to do so. And I, I, again, I get Mike's point. You know, don't be overly pejorative with people, but at the same time, you need to be more historically and, and linguistically aware of where these terms arise and how they're even being used today by people who affirm them. You know, R.C. You know, Sproul Jr. and all these sorts of, you know, biblical patriarchy dudes. So all this to say, um, I, I think a little more uh, nuance is, is, is needed here, but I take Mike's point. I, I get what he's trying to say. Number four, and we're going to get into detail on this one. This one's getting philosophical. The fourth huge mistake is believing that equality of personhood rules out differences in roles. Um, let me try to unpack this one more carefully because this is a philosophical argument. You, you could read about it yourself. Uh, one of the sources I've got here is Good News for Women by uh, Rebecca Merrill Gruthuis, who's uh, very brilliant. She sadly recently passed away a few years ago. Um, committed Christian, loves the Lord, loves God, serves Christ, right? But, but she did base one of her major arguments. In fact, probably her whole book is based upon something that I would consider a huge mistake as we approach this topic. And that is a belief that if women are equal in personhood, it rules out differences in roles. This is a philosophical belief that I come to the Bible with, right? So then the Bible's not allowed to change my mind on that. That's, that's the belief I have firmly entrenched. All right, so um, this is an interesting one. So first, he thinks that uh, what he just laid out was uh, Grotius's uh, philosophical belief that she brought um, came to the Bible with. Um, that's not the case um, with her book, Good News for Women, or any of her other writings. Really, it's her study of the scriptures that brought her to that. So he's essentially taking a conclusion that's arrived at by her from her vast reading of scripture and making it 
uh, her st- her starting point because yeah, this is something she's already brought to the text before she's done it, which is uh, just a, a head a pants overhead sort of way of arguing. Yeah, and so um, for instance, in her chapter one, uh, she does introduce the concept that she's going to be talking about, and then talks about where she got it from, and lo and behold, it's from the Bible. Um, so I'll go ahead and read what she says, and it coheres with um, what uh, uh, Mike thinks is being read into the text. But really, it's coming out of her study of the text. So because the concept of equality is employed in so many ways to mean so many different things, confusion and consternation typically attends the discussion on the subject. So in other words, she's defining terms. That's what you do when you're um, approaching a debate. Biblical equality refers to the fundamental biblical principle that every human being stands on equal ground before God. Complementarians agree. There is no group of persons that is inherently more or less worthy than another. Complementarians agree. It follows from this principle that there is no moral or theological justification for permanently granting or denying a person's status, privilege, or prerogative solely on the basis of that person's race, class, or gender. So that's what she's going to try to um, show in her book. Um, that's what she she's going to add on. And so it's not the end all. It's you're framing this is what I'm going to discuss. And then she goes on to say a biblical view of gender equality does not mean that gender makes no difference in a person's identity or behavior, but that gender ought not in and of itself limit a person's status or ministry options. She goes on. So she's defining how egalitarians um, see the matter. And then going down, the truth of equality of all persons under God is grounded in creation. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 and 5, 1 through 2 state that both male and female humans bear God's image equality without distinction. Both have been commanded equally and without distinction to take dominion, not one over the others, but both together over the rest of God's creation for the glory of the creator. The essential quality of all people is foundational to the message of Jesus Christ, who insisted that the concern of his disciples to be exercise of the submission and servanthood rather than the effort to claim or attain status and authority. Matthew 20, 25 through 28, Mark 10, 42 through 45, by the way, also um, echoed um, or uh, you can see have a version of it in First Timothy too. by the way. Um, Luke 22, uh, 25 through 27. I was trying to say uh, Mark 10 is also in First Timothy. Um, you can find it there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she goes in the new covenant. God shows no favoritism for one group of people over another. Acts 10, 34 through 35, Romans 2, 11, James 2, 8 through 9, et cetera, et cetera. So she, she basically lists a ton of scripture passages and goes through all of them and then lays out her case um, biblically. Um, so again, uh, it's not, this isn't an assumption she brought to the text. Uh, this is, she framed the argument. Um, she uh, basically said, uh, here's where maybe there's a misunderstanding of the term. Here's why I'm using this term and why and how I'm using it. And it's because it's grounded in scripture. Um, I have a scripturally saturated uh, understanding of equality. And so that's what she does. So again, what he's done is left out um, all the grounding she had of her perspective in scripture. Um, so, you know, there's not much else to say here. It, it's simply that he has not, it's kind of like he disjointed or took out um, a kind of introductory section and made it the entirety of the case and made it antithetical to scripture rather than grounded like what she says disagree with her or not but she is she thinks she's getting these from scripture and a, a key point here as well is would would Grotice accept what mike says about her as accurate 
And I think, you know, a belief that if women are equal in person, it rules out differences in roles. I think that is just not a fair way to characterize her argument in the slightest. Uh, specifically, um, what we have here, as Allison read, there's quite a bit of what's going on. But here's the thing. Women are, I think, more than men, based on kind of evangelicalism, are acutely aware of gender differences. Mm -hmm. One, it gets reinforced every single sermon you go to. If you go to Mike's church and Mike is preaching on women in ministry, the gender differences and roles get reinforced with literally every 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 sermon or every uh, uh, homily or whatever you have. So these gender roles are already enforced, um, kind of uncritically so. Yeah. Well, here's something I think was really helpful. So we have the basis of what uh, uh, Rebecca's written, both her books, which are arts, which are outstanding in their philosophical acuity and theological relevance. And again, and, her philosophy is based off of what she found in scripture. And so what I'd like to do here is this is something uh, Douglas Grotice, who, who's professor at Denver Seminary, actually wrote about his wife. Uh, and this will kind of give uh, an extended uh, understanding of who, who Becky was. You know, Mike mm -hmm. rightly says she was magnificent, and she was and, and is, and uh, as the Lord is holding her in heaven. Um, but this is what Doug said about his wife. Um, and I'm going to quote extensively from this. Uh, first, Becky uh, was unflagging in her belief in the inerrancy of the Bible. She never countenanced any form of feminism or equalitarianism that brought into question or denied the utter truthfulness of Holy Scripture. As a lifelong Christian and evangelical, Becky demanded the amen of the Bible in order to form, hold, and defend strong beliefs. Mm -hmm. We were the Carl F. Henry and Francis A. Schaeffer kind of evangelicals when it came to biblical inerrancy. We still are. So Doug is speaking for himself as well. That means that the Bible in the original autographs is inspired in every word and is therefore infallible and inerrant in all that it teaches. Becky could sniff out theologies and interpretations that failed to hold a high view of scripture, however much, however much the authors or speakers may have nominally affirmed it. Yes, she was a stickler, but never a pendant. Uh, second, knowing that egalitarians are often accused, rightly or wrongly, of twisting the scripture to support their position, Becky eschewed any hermeneutic untethered from authorial intent as the key to unlocking the meaning of the sacred text. See uh, 2 Peter 3, uh, 16. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee and Old Testament scholar Walt Kaiser were her guiding lights on this. She further took pains to establish that her interpretations were free from any postmodern hermeneutics. So she was intentional about it. Most philosophers, if they're doing philosophy right, are very aware of what they bring. Um, Becky was never driven by, uh, continuing on, Becky was never driven by a pre-established agenda to find something in the text that was not intrinsically there to begin with. And then finally, theological consistency was the third star by which Becky navigated the deep and dangerous waters of the egalitarian traditionalist controversy. See, Grutice is not being pedantic, that's just the term that was used back then. She, that was Becky, was determined that the Bible spoke with one voice, the voice of truth, since truth is one and because it is impossible for God to lie. And every affirmation of scripture must logically agree with every other affirmation of scripture. This is known as the analogy of faith. While Becky holds no theological degree, she is self-taught and autodictate, uh, gifted with great intelligence and spiritual discernment. Uh, see 1 Thess 5, 21-23. For her, unless the entire Bible supported egalitarianism, she would not affirm it. We heartily yeah. agree on this, which made our journey to biblical equality an unhurried one, full of questions, debate, and rethinking. So all this, and that end quote. And so that is, um, we see the evidence of that in uh, Rebecca and Becky's um, 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 fruits of her work, you know, her, her massive books on the subject, um, her careful and, and uh, precise language. And also, um, we see the consistency of what Doug says here. So um, I think... Uh, I, I think what we have here is uh, a woman who is deeply uh, aware of what she brings to the text, but also has brought what she has to the text and subjected it to the rigor of the biblical text. And shock of shock, scripture uh, 
challenged her, formed her, molded her, and, and made her into a biblical egalitarian. And so all this to say, what we'll see, what Mike says about her makes virtually no sense of what she's actually written and published on the subject. And it's also not corroborated with her husband who would affirm uh, what Becky actually wrote. Yeah. And I mean, you can think that someone might not be coming with the, always the purest motives, but again, take it from what they actually say. Um, what he's done is not listen to everything uh, he said. So again, I think what we have here is evidence that he has approached Becky in this case with a um, understanding of maybe how egalitarians are or um, what kind of case egalitarians make. And he saw something that vaguely looked like an egalitarian position and then ignored what came after. Well, and, and here's here's the kicker, and this is something I'm just realizing. She, he says she's bringing this to the text. She's bringing these sorts of things to the text. Um, the issue with that is she wrote this book in response to complementarianism yes. and traditionalism. So um, it's one of those things where I think that's sort of that's sort of that's kind of projection. And he's also assuming that she everyone that he's talking to starts with the exact same spot that he is. That is not a, a healthy or, or accurate way of engaging this debate. Becky came to this conversation with all sorts of things that she was already working on. She's not coming to this like Mike Winger. Mike Winger is basically assuming she's a tabula, you know, she, you know, you're a tabula rasa. This is just not true. And I, I think it's confirmed by both Doug's, uh, Dr. Grotice's work and Becky's work and what we see both in the published literature and what Doug said about it. Yeah, so she does correct, again, a term, you know, the term egalitarian and the assumptions brought to the understanding of equality. And she clears that up. And that's what he's decided is the entirety of her belief that's not grounded in any scripture, despite her saying, actually, this is what scripture has to say about it. So anyway, let's move on and let's let's hear some more about um, what Grotius's beliefs um, are. So you can also read, if you want the short version of her argument, you can read chapter 20 in Discovering Biblical Equality. This is a brand new edition. Um, this book's been out for a while and it is a is in, it's all egalitarian. Every scholar in it's egalitarian and it's big. OK, <laughs> yes, I read it. And the. Um, uh, this is like the most cutting edge scholarship to be presented. It just came out last November and I actually got an advanced copy so I could study it a little ahead of time. But yeah, in, in chapter 20, she goes into this in detail. Um, basically her main point is, let me get you back to my screen. There we go. Um, uh, Dr. Gruthwis, her main point is that um, one cannot possibly logically suggest that women are equal in person and different in role. And if that's true, well, then it doesn't matter what the Bible says. So let me walk you through how this goes. I'm repeating myself a few times here because I just want to make sure I make this point clear because I think it's actually, this is embedded in a lot of egalitarian writings. Okay, and it's one reason why I'm not egalitarian. It's because I'm not going to adopt these philosophies that force my Bible reading. I'm going to let the Bible breathe and go wherever it wants to go. Alrighty, so... We've got the third edition of Discovering Biblical Equality here. Um, and in the contents, you can see the different topics that are covered in this larger book. Um, History Matters, Evangelicals and Women by Mimi Haddad. Gender Increasing and Fall, Genesis 1-3 through by Mary Conway. Three, The Treatment of Women Under the Mosaic Law, Ronald Pierce and Mary Conway. And then you've got Women Leaders in the Church by Linda Belleville. It's a great article. It's a great piece. Um, Jesus' Treatment of Women in the Gospels, Ida Spencer, so, and on and on and on and on. And then you come to 
um, her chapter, chapter 20. Um, and chapter 20 is under part two, thinking it through theological and logical perspectives. So we had part one, which was a lot more going into the biblical text. Um, Lynn Kohick's in here too, um, loving and submitting to one another in marriage, chapter 10. So quick plug. Um, but yeah, so in section two, they're talking about um, just, yeah, more the theological, logical perspective. So you would expect a chapter along those lines. Um, and so chapter 20 is equal in being, unequal in role, challenging the logic of women's subordination. All right. So her chapter 20 in this larger book is about an uh, answering to a certain complementarian uh, way of thinking. So that's what we'd expect. So is it going to be the entirety of her biblical case for why she's an egalitarian? No, it's going to be her response to her opponents. Surprise, surprise. We've been arguing this for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years. Yeah. So what we have is a response to her opponents. And I'll let him um, continue on. But all this to say he has now made um, her response to her opponents and their way of thinking uh, theologically and logically and critiquing them on that basis as the entirety or her and maybe her main case. And then saying, well, it's not a biblical case. Um, it, it's a critique of your case. That, that's what's happening here. It's a critique of Mike's worldview. Yeah. So, I mean, like, here's a here's a way of thinking kind of what move happens. And this is just kind of silly. So it's kind of like saying, you know, we'll pick something absurd. So I think Trump is Jesus incarnate and Biden is one of his many faces. Response. Political modalism is absurd because of X, Y, and Z. And then you respond, you can't listen to them. They're making philosophical arguments when you should already come to scripture instead. Um, so, you know, again, it misses that this is a response to this absurd thing you just said. Um, it misses the actual literary context of what actually has been going on. Literary, not in the terms of the book, but the literary in terms of literature and publications. Yeah, so again, it's he doesn't realize this is a critique of his perspective um, and not a standalone claim. He should know because there's a bit a larger book that supposedly he's read through and they're not in the biblical exegesis section anymore, but oh well. So the author builds the case that saying women are not to exercise leadership over men, though she does speak really strongly as though the complementarian view is just that that um, any form of leadership is banned to a woman and that all men have authority over all women. And this is not what most complementarians view. It's certainly not, I think, a biblical view. But her point is that if you have that role, that women are not to exercise leadership over men, it makes women less human. It makes them actually less human. So she actually presents this in a the form of a syllogism. So here's the syllogism from, from, from her book. Uh, actually, I think this is from uh, chapter 20 here in discovering biblical equality. And I'm going to read through the syllogism here. She says, and it's, you know, the syllogism is like three, three statements. It's like premise one or idea number one, idea number two, and then the conclusion, which is number three there. So if the permanent, comprehensive, and ontologically grounded subordination of women is justified, then women are inferior persons. That's where she spends most of her time is proving that that makes women less human, inferior humans. Uh, number two, her point number two is that women are not inferior persons. And then three, her conclusion is, therefore, women's subordination is not justified. Right? If women are truly fully human, then you can't have any sort of role differences regarding authority. So first we'll analyze it. Then I'll explain why, even if you think she's right, you've totally bypassed the Bible. Like you're not reading the Bible anymore. 
All right, so um, I'll lay out some of her case for you and I'll read some of it just so you can see the context uh, that she's operating in. And as we've covered, um, it's part of a larger book. So um, the section is in, uh, well, if you want to look at the exact argument uh, Mike is talking about, it's on 411. But I'm going to go a little earlier just so you can get a good frame. So page 395, for instance, unpacking the rhetoric of roles. Although evangelical patriarchy is similar to traditional patriarchy in key respects, it also trades heavily on the distinctive and historically novel claim that women are equal in being, but unequal in role. In other words, women are the equals of men spiritually and in their being, but when it comes to living out the meaning and purpose of manhood and womanhood, women must submit to male role. The distinction between being and function, or ontology and role, is fundamental to the doctrine of male leadership today. The distinction between equal being and unequal role serves as the hermeneutical lens through which the biblical data are interpreted. Um, it is this the theoretical construct that permits evangelical patriarchalists to interpret the submission text as universal statements of the creation roles of manhood and womanhood, while also acknowledging biblical teaching on the spiritual and ontological equality of man and women. So she's basically saying uh, that the complementarian view is different uh, than the historical traditional uh, view because Traditionally, uh, women's uh, subordination was grounded in um, unequal inequality in ontology or their essence. Um, and so she appeals to Aristotle's thought. Um, a lot of the church fathers um, thought along those lines. Oh, well, women are just naturally uh, more easily deceived, more uh, naturally uh, maybe uh, uh, malformed men was also an understanding um, so they're they're deficient in in personhood in ontology versus the complementarian view that says women have uh, full dignity and worth um, alongside men. Um, they just have different functions. So again, the complementarians want to make it a functional uh, difference and not an ontological one. Um, so that's a change historically. Um, her understanding is this actually isn't logical and it doesn't um, it doesn't actually work. Um, so she talks about the law of non-contradiction on page 397. Um, and so she says, it's not just a human construct that God's truth somehow transcends, rather it is necessary and fundamental to all meaningful discourse and communication, including God's revelation of his word in scripture. That is why biblical scholars who hold to the Bible's infallibility, so basing in, God, in biblical infallibility, seek to resolve apparent contradictions in scripture. It's axiomatic that if the Bible contradicts itself, then it cannot be true in all of its forms. And so she's going to argue that there is a contradiction here in what the complementarians um, want to claim um, and that it doesn't actually square biblically. Um, so that's what a lot of her um, work is going to be. So she says in part one of this chapter, it will be argued that the equal being unequal role construct fails to defend the subordination of women against the implication of women's inferiority. So again, she's not saying that complementarians believe all women are inferior. What she's saying is this is an implication. Yeah. And, That's and a very different thing. For an example for those who may, not all Calvinists believe that God is the author of sin. Yeah. Non-Calvinists might argue that. Most would not. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but you have, you know, a, a common critique of Calvinism is it makes God the author of sin if you take it to its logical implication. Or that could be true or false, but that's the argument, that it's taking to the logical conclusion rather than saying all Calvinists believe X. Exactly. So it's, it's one, we want to be fair to uh, Becky here and what she's actually claiming. 
Yeah. So I'm going to go now a little closer to 411, um, just to frame it for you guys, and then we'll get into it. Um, so uh, 410, female subordination differs from functional subordination in its scope, duration, and criterion. The subordination of women is limited neither in scope nor in duration, it is not based on inferior ability or designed to accompany a temporary task, it is a comprehensive encompassing all that a woman does, permanent, extending throughout the life of a woman and applying to all women at all times, and decided solely by an unchangeable aspect of a woman's personal being, femaleness, although femaleness is in fact irrelevant to ascertaining a, a person's innate abilities and the higher functions involved in leadership, decision-making, and self-governance. These are precisely the functions from which women are permanently ex excluded. Thus, the inferiority of, a female, of female persons in these key areas is clearly implied. When subordination follows necessarily and justifiably from the subordinate person's unalterable nature, the subordinate is inferior in at least some aspects of her being. In this case, the scope and duration of the person's subordination will reflect the extent and significance of the inferiority. Because the subordination that is demanded by women's unalterable female uh, being is of comprehensive scope and permanent duration, excluding women from a wide range of high-level, distinctly human functions, it implies an extensive and significant personal inferiority. But in this case of subordination is not justifiable because women are not, in fact, innately inferior in these distinctly human capabilities. But put more formally and succinctly, and that's where she goes to the argument that um, he just laid out. And by the way, that's a modus tollens, and that is a valid argument. Um, so again, she, what he, she's trying to say is, um, again, if, if the permanent, comprehensive, and ontologically grounded subordinate nation of women is justified, then women are inferior persons. And you can read everything she said before, you know, and understand what she's saying there. Women are not inferior persons, therefore women's subordination is not justified. Um, and then in her footnote 43, however, I do not say that permanent subordination necessarily implies personal inequality. The issue is not simply permanence, but whether the subordination is truly functional. So she doesn't believe that the subordination is truly functional, despite, you know, what complementarians um, think of their own view. Subordination can allow for equality of personhood only if it is a functional subordination, which female subordination is not. Moreover, it is possible for functional subordination to be permanent. So there you go. Um, so just framing that one. And, I, and I'll use her words to demonstrate this. Um, so I agree with number two. Women are not inferior persons. I imagine you guys all agree. <laughs> You'll see when we get to Genesis next week, women are not inferior persons. Okay, this is important. But submissive roles and inferior personhood are not the same thing in my view. I think, for instance, a child has this has equal personhood, no inferior personhood, though they're submitting to the parent or an employee or whatever. So, yep. So obviously, uh, based off of what I just read, he didn't understand her argument. Otherwise, that would not be the response. So again, uh, she has pointed out that the issue is not just pure functionality, but um, more in terms of uh, it being inherent to femaleness versus a temporary state where you're a child and um, maybe other factors as well. Although equating women and children is not uncommon in this debate, unfortunately. Yeah, true. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, okay, and let me just say, uh, it's the difference between um, maybe a system where uh, the president um, is president for a time rather than the right of kinghood by birth. 
Um, but let's let's walk through some of these qualifications. He goes, if um, if a woman's role is permanent, comprehensive, ontologically grounded, these are three qualifications she has for how we view women's roles. And I think these are not true for complementarians. The complementarians aren't saying this. The, the Bible's not saying this either, in my opinion. But number one, um, is it permanent? Uh, no, it's not. Duration is limited. Uh, the, the, the duration of a woman's submission, if if a woman is called to submit in some capacity, is limited. It's as long as marriage lasts, if it's in the marriage, and it's in this speck of life, uh, and then we have an eternity of ruling. And this is kind of like a biblical thing, that you don't view this current life like it's your permanent state. It's really important that we don't. Jesus talks about this, the, 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 the issue of not, not um, storing up treasures on earth and not having your eyes upon the earth, but setting our eyes upon Christ and living for the kingdom of heaven. So this principle of, of it being permanent is, I don't think, biblical. Um, but why does duration matter? I'm not sure why duration matters. It's permanent. Okay, but, you know, for many other examples, we have all sorts of people. Like, if you're not an elder in your church, then at least for your entire life, you're submitting to someone else who is. So most Christians are in a permanent, for their life, season of submission to some other leader who might be kind of a, a punk, right? <laughs> it's possible. And this this shouldn't affect your view of your humanity. That seems strange to me. All right. So directing you guys back to footnote 43. However, I do not say that permanent subordination necessarily implies personal inequality. The issue is not simply permanence, but whether the subordination is truly functional. So again, it goes back to the whole thing where she says they think they're, um, you know, trying to limit it to functionality, it actually doesn't happen. And so, again, I appealed to maybe the difference here between the divine right of kings and maybe uh, a citizen and a president. So they're not the same thing. Um, one, again, you have the position of authority by uh, right of birth versus um, being um, voted in by citizens or, you know, it, you know, there's all sorts of other um, things attached to that. Um so yeah, he doesn't he doesn't get what she's saying, and that's kind of obvious here. Something we could, we could ask Mike is why are women uniquely subordinate as women in this life? Then um, is it arbitrary? Most complementarians would say it's um, in the created order, or you know, and they would talk about nature, um, the nature of being a man or a woman, and they would start describing differences between men and women. Um, all of these actually use rhetoric of ontology without meaning to. And so if it becomes ontological, then that's the problem that you've got. And again, the complementarian perspective is different in history in that before they had overtly the ontological piece. Complementarianism later on, uh, maybe it was influenced by American culture, among you know other things, uh, said, you know, um, all men are men and women <laughs> are created equal. Um, before the creator and women too and especially you know things happened women got the vote and their life experience changed and so maybe some of their um, understanding of the text did adjust over time as they had discussions with other people and you know encountered more women in the workplace among other things and so they subtly shifted without realizing it and maybe some of the original reasons that were based in ontology disappeared but then the question is, does their perspective actually um, logically make sense without this other component? Um, Grotheis's uh, 
understanding is the answer is no, it doesn't make sense. It's illogical. And so what she's trying to do is explain that piece to them. And whether or not you can you agree with um, Grotius or not, uh, that's one thing. But again, I think he misses what she's actually trying to argue here. So it's also not comprehensive. It's not comprehensive. Um, women's submission, even if complementarians are right on that theory, it's not comprehensive because it's it's limited in scope. Now, let me describe what I mean here. Uh, on page 422 of Discovering Biblical Equality, um, Gruthuis says the following about women's submission. She says, quote, There is no area in which a woman has any authority, privilege, or opportunity that a man is denied. I'm going to read that again. This is, her, this is what she, she seems to think complementarians are promoting. There's no area, none, in which a woman has any authority, privilege, or opportunity that a man is denied. And then I read that and I was like, this seems like such an overblowing of the issues. Like she can't choose what to wear, eat, laugh at, what hobbies to have. Like the, woman, the man has authority over her laughter now. Uh, what commands to give her kids? Is she not an authority over her own children? Why is does male authority equal complete comprehensive control over area every area of her life? It it doesn't. But that is how not just Dr. Gruthwis, who is an influencer, a major influencer in this egalitarian, you know, in, in those circles, but it's how many other egalitarians put it too. What is what this what's happening here is we're gonna we're gonna expand male authority to be the the largest and most monstrous it can be so that it becomes intolerable so that you decide ahead of time before you've read your, your Bible that it's completely unacceptable. And that's exactly what her whole argument seems to do. All right, so this next bit actually picks up in a subsection called the priests and the Levites. So um, this section is actually um, you know quite niche, so it's uh, addressing very uh, interesting and particular critiques um, or people that are going to appeal to the Levites to for their perspective. Interestingly, um, for uh, Mike's prior uh, situation where he was talking about uh, the child in a parent being an example that refutes uh, Grotius, it'd been interesting if he brought in her critique of that analogy. Um, so on page 420, for instance, uh, she talks about um, one argument by analogy often put forward that a child's subordination to a parent does not imply a child's inferiority in being, then neither does a woman's subordination, et cetera, et cetera. She says that's a false analogy because um, there's an ontological basis, childhood, and childhood is a temporary condition. So again, you know, not quite reading in context. But yeah, going back up, um, the rest of this chapter will address two key theological analogies that are often advanced in order to justify women's subordination. That comes right in the next page, 421. Priests and Levites. Some have argued that because God assigned the Levites, especially those in the Aaronic priesthood, to a specific religious function from that the other Israelites were excluded, this shows by analogy that the doctrine of male authority in marriage and ministry does not violate the essential equality of women and men. This argument is flawed both analogically and theologically. And by the way, um, for those that were, are, you know, say that, you know, 12 disciples or, you know, Jesus was male, therefore, guess what? Jesus also wasn't part of the tribe of Levite. So just going to say that. Um, anyway, um, so going on. Although the Levitical priesthood is roughly analogous to male authority in terms of lifelong duration and its basis in unalterable physical being, its scope is a different matter. The scope of female subordination to male authority is comprehensive. A married woman is subject to her husband's authority in every area of her life. Okay, now we're picking up to where the quote is. There's no area in which woman has any authority, privilege, or opportunity that a man is denied. 
The male is consistently advantaged with respect to the female, and the female is consistently disadvantaged in respect to the male. The Levites, however, were not consistently advantaged with respect to the people. They were denied the right of the other tribes to own their inherit land. Um, in patriarchal agrarian societies, uh, land ownership was deemed supremely desirable and a mark of social status, a right generally denied the less privileged classes, such as women and slaves, so et cetera, et cetera. Um, so anyway, he takes uh, issue in this subsection to her saying um, there's no area in which a woman has any authority, privilege, or opportunity that a man is denied. Um, I don't think uh, he should, and he, he takes it in terms of she can't decide the way she wears her hair or something. like The Mark Driscoll thing. She changed her hair ipso facto back. Yeah, well, and okay, so case in point. Um, so a couple of things to be said here. Uh, maybe you could have found a better example that wasn't a subsection, but... It's probably very likely that, so not all complementarians and um, people that hold to gender hierarchy are the same. Um, Grotius is not just um, uh, just addressing uh, Mike's particular complementarian church. Um, some are different than others. So Mark Driscoll was quite offended, for instance, uh, that his wife changed her hair when she got pregnant and got very mad. Um, Mark Driscoll, in hindsight, uh, a lot of people would say was not the best example of complementarianism. Reality is uh, he had a major following and he still has a lot of the people that are uh, rooting for him and uh, thinking that, you know, people are constantly oppressing him, etc. So the reality is there are some very negative complementarian trends out there um, and some communities have different perspectives than others. So, again, uh I'm glad Mike's community is not like that. So maybe she's not talking about Mike's particular complementarian community. Um, I'm going to read um, from another um, book. Um, and this is a, this is most definitely not Mike's uh, church, but just to give you guys another understanding of some of the folks that um, Grotius is likely interacting with. Um, Created to be his helpmeet. Discover how God can make your marriage glorious by Debbie Pearl. So, um, page 50, and this book is chocked full of stuff, so um, read it at your own peril. Um, but a woman's calling is not easy. To allow someone else to control your life is much harder than ever taking control of it yourself. It can be a challenge, even for veteran wives. Don't despair. With wisdom from on high, you can be the woman God uses. If not to change that old man into a wonderful fellow, then at least to ease your own burden and become a heavenly bride fit for the Son of God himself. So, you know, again... Yeah, so she understands it in terms of the husband controls all areas of a wife's um, life. Um, she, in her book also, I remember, had this example of um, a man that hit his wife and had a come-to-Jesus moment in the church and stuff. And, you know, she, the wife was super submissive, yada, yada. And, you know... We're, you know, there's a lot that could be said about that um, that I think Mike would also take issue with. But the reality is um, this is a problem in some of these churches as well. And again, it's not going to be every place. Um, uh, yeah, so again, this is, you know, again, uh, I think uh, for Mike, I would just, you know, recommend, uh, number one, read uh, Grotes in Context and, you know, realize that not everything's going to be a, um, direct match for what you personally believe. Um, but, you know, the reality is there's a lot of 
um, complementarian communities out there that believe that, yeah, women have a, you know, men have a lot of degree of control over their wives. And, you know, again, I think most people, at least um, in the U.S., don't take that kind of perspective, um, complementarian or not. But again, there's a dominant trend um, within the complementarian camp that does. And again, there's one reason why Driscoll was so popular for a long time. And there's some communities that take this a lot further than others. Um, a woman is to believe in and follow Christ in scripture, right? regardless of how many times a husband tells her not to. The husband's like, yeah, stop praying. She's like, uh, no, I'm going to do, do what I want to do and pray. That's You have no authority over this. Like this is even on an egalitarian view. Um, <clears throat> let's see, uh, only the most extreme version of complementarianism might hold this view. And, and I would argue vehemently, I would hold hands with egalitarians and argue against those people as most complementarians would. And I think scripture would. So um, this is only an argument as it, as it is on your screen there. And I'm leaving it up because it's, it helps you consider it more. It's only an argument against some crazy extreme form of complementarianism that I, I wouldn't even call complementarianism. I would just call uh, super masculine authority. Hey, Mike, don't don't be allergic to the term patriarchy. You can call it what it is. All right. So again, Exhibit A, uh, Driscoll. Uh, exhibit B. Um, yeah, here's a more extreme version. Um, uh, the husband's sphere of authority. Two sixty. Debbie Pearl again. Uh, wife does not have to choose between God and her husband. So yeah, husband doesn't decide everything. You know, especially if he asks you to choose against God. Um, so the authority of God gave to your husband is his alone and God will not interfere and take back to himself that power. Even if your husband abuses his powers within certain permissible parameters, we will discuss those exceptions directly. But first know that a husband has authority to tell his wife what to wear, where to go, whom to talk to, how to spend her time, when to speak and when not to, even if he is unreasonable and insensitive, insensitive, but he does not have authority to command her to view pornography with him or assist him in the commission of a crime. Well, there you go. So, you know, there's absolutely no limits there. You know, it's not like there anything goes. After all, he can't have you watch porn, I guess. Give you a black eye, sure. But um, anyway, again, you know, I, I laugh to keep from crying here. Um, but again, the reality is there's a whole spectrum of hierarchical views. Um, some gradations of complementarianism as well. Um, and it's... The reality is every uh, patriarchal and every complementarian community is going to have um, a little bit of a different understanding on what, how expansive the authority of the man is and how um, expansive the subordination of a woman is. And that's just the reality of it. And again, I don't think um, Grotius is quite saying that all or nothing. Um, so even though I've established that, yeah, there are communities that go that far, um, she says there's no area in which a woman has any authority, privilege, or opportunity that a man is denied. So again, her her point is not to make that anything goes point that we've just uh, critiqued anyway, but more to say that it doesn't work um, necessarily in reverse. So it's not that the woman's given particular authority or privilege um, that the man doesn't have in this case, as was the case with the Levites. So again, it, it was the problem here is that he um, interestingly snaps into a uh, more extreme form of patriarchalism and um, complementarianism, um, which maybe it means that 
perhaps he's a little bit more aware of it than uh, he realizes. Um, maybe not. Or maybe it just simply, like, it sounds absurd to him because it's, you know, foreign to his perspective. But the reality is she's not even talking about that. She's talking about the Levites and how there were limits on their ability, for instance, as priests. They couldn't have uh, land, um, which was a big thing for uh, social status and land ownership. So there was a, a privilege that they were denied by virtue of being Levites. Um, she's saying that doesn't, that that analogy, because that's what she's critiquing, doesn't work in the reverse for men and women, because it's not like women have special privileges um, in terms of authority that men don't have um, in this complementarian scheme. Um, now, um, that uh, wasn't the case um, in ancient Israelite culture. Uh, they did have um, privileges and authority that men didn't have, especially in terms of management of the home oftentimes. But that's a whole different story. Right now, we're talking about complementarianism and their perspective. So it's not like women are uniquely and only authoritative or in charge of X, of the home, for instance, because man is the head of the wife in complementarianism. Even if she takes more prerogative over, I don't know, um, other things, it doesn't mean that um, she has more authority in those things. So Gruthuis regularly speaks as though all women are submissive to all men and ignores relational aspects of a wife submitting to one man, her husband, or everyone in the church submitting to the elders in that location in some respects, but not all. Instead, she speaks so generally that it's like every man has total, like as if I was just walking down the street and I was like, hey, woman, hey, come here, tie my shoes. Hey, woman, hey, go bake me some cookies. And I could just sort of command, it, it, it feels really clumsy. All right, yep. So again, he obviously hasn't, read her uh, carefully and, you know, continues to think that she's talking about all men and all women, which, as you can read, um, even in terms of what he quoted, that's not what she said. Uh, I think he was, it, it It makes some sense that this could be a interpretation of what she says if you dislodge it from the context. Even then, I think it's hard to arrive at that unless there's maybe some prior sensitivity towards um maybe that being a critique of all complementarians. So all complementarians um, are abusive or overly controlling against their wives. So, you know, it's possible he's kind of uh, maybe reading in a not so good uh, or careful critique of complementarians by people on the popular level. Um, but that's not what Grotius is saying. So the core of her argument here about ontology is that um, you complementarians are going to say, hey, you're, you're saying women are equal in role or equal in, sorry, uh, person, but different in role. But I'm telling you, if that role is connected to her person, then she's not equal. That doesn't work. This appears to be because of Gruthuis's definition of human. It's a little hard for me to really understand her argument in some ways. So I hope I communicate this well. She defines human this way. And I'll, uh, I'll come back to that syllogism in a minute. She defines human this way as... Uh, you having, you know, humans have higher rational functions, which include decision-making and that that's what it means to be intrinsically human, having higher rational functions, including decision-making. So then in her argument, it seems that decision-making in the form of being a leader of others is being human. That's how her argument kind of works. Then she reasons that not allowing women to do this sort of decision-making by virtue of them being a woman is inherently dehumanizing. I don't follow personally. Um, all I can say is I don't see why human capacities, like I have the capacity to lead the country as president, but I'm not. Like, I don't really see how that's dehumanizing to me. Um, I don't see how 
unexpressed human capacities make somebody less human. I mean, anybody who dies in childhood is therefore less human because they have all these unexpressed capacities. It would seem, I don't know how you get around that. I mean, she would have answers to this. I just, I don't think they work personally. All right. So again, he admits he doesn't really understand what she's saying and I believe him. Um, so again, uh, She's making a modus tollens um, that's denying the consequent um, if P, then Q, not Q, therefore not uh, P. Um, she's, he, um, Mike says it doesn't follow. Uh, it does follow. Um, the fallacious form would be um, affirming the consequent, not denying it. So if P, then Q, Q, therefore P. So again, I think, uh, I think he's getting confused. Um, but yeah, what she d says does follow. I think he, he does not follow maybe her argument is the real issue here. So, you know, that's all right. You know, can't win them all. Um, I also don't see why leadership over men specifically is required to say that you're engaging in higher rational capacities. Like, why is it that I have to lead? And it's not even leadership over men because <clears throat> Grutowicz doesn't think you have to actually do these things to be, she thinks you have to have the potential. You have to at least give, be given some kind of opportunity to do them if you have the skills. But I, I just think that's, I don't know why we're defining human that way, right? Because I feel like a lot of people are becoming less human <laughs> as we do these things. All right. So uh, the reason uh, she's defining things that way is if in her book and in her work in general, she brings it back to Genesis and the whole role of uh, men and women together in, you know, over creation. So there you go. There's other passages too. But uh, again, I think he just didn't, he doesn't understand because maybe he just zeroed in on the parts he thought could help um, him maybe do a podcast or sounded vaguely like um, what he expected to find and didn't really take a lot of time to understand the areas that were difficult for him to understand. Um, he thinks he's going to bring clarity and uh, perspective to people so that they don't have to guess. And yet he doesn't understand the argument and, but he's going to critique it anyway and show us the way forward. Let me go to her conclusion and show you this. This is now, even if you think everything I said was wrong, Mike Grutowicz is right. You're totally wrong about everything you said. I'm still going to push back on you really hard right now and say, you're blocking the Bible. You, you cannot read the Bible. And in Grutowicz's own words, I want to show you, if you believe this, you will not be able to read the Bible. Here's her conclusion at the end of, um, I think this is at the end of Discovering Biblical Equality, chapter 20. Women's inferior role cannot be defended by the claim that it is ontologically distinct from women's equal being. I already talked about that. Um, in female subordination, being determines role and role defines being. Um, and now, I, again, I would disagree. I would say it looks to me like it could be that um, role is assigned as in association with being without being determining role, in which case the assignment from God is the determiner, not your nature, in which case her argument seems to collapse. All right. So basically, uh, he reduces her view of human uh, to one element of critique of a complementarian view. When the classic egalitarian uh, and herself roots it in the Imago Dei, the image of God and or like new creation, Christ. Um, Grotius does this in her first chapter of her book. Um, again, he does not get that a critique of a violation of a biblical principle is not itself the grounding perspective. So again, he takes something out of context and makes it her entire grounding perspective and runs with it. Thus, there can be no real distinction between the two. If the one is inferior, so must the other. 
be inferior. If on the other hand, woman is not less than man in her personal being, then, and here's the highlighted part, neither can there be any biblical or theological warrant for a woman's permanent, comprehensive, and ontologically grounded submission to man's authority. Now, of course, I don't believe in a woman's permanent, comprehensive, and ontologically grounded submission to man's authority, but even as a complementarian, but more important, the highlighted section, here's what I want you to notice. She brings the argument and in her conclusion, she just totally cards on the table. She's like, look, my argument is meant to tell you, you are not allowed to conclude with the Bible that the complementarian view is right. It's illegal. It's not allowed. This is how we bypass the Bible. Even if you agree with Gruthius, it kills your interpretation. It kills it. You have two options. One, the Bible supports my egalitarian views. Or two, the Bible is wrong. And these are the two sides that I often see come out of this kind of thinking. It's an either or choice based on a straw man is what we've got here. Philip Payne says something related to this too. Philip Payne in his book, Man and Woman, One in Christ, um, big, long book. <laughs> um, he says that um, if we're equal in Christ, then we can't exclude anyone from leadership based on gender. Now, this is different because Grutha was her point is if you're equally human, then you have to be allowed all the same opportunities for um, authority. Uh, Pain's argument is different. Pain is about being equal in Christ, not equal in your nature, but equal in your salvation. So if you're equal in Christ, if women are equal in Christ, you cannot exclude them from leadership based on gender. Let me take you to a quote from Payne. He's a very influential guy on these topics. Um, when I asked egalitarians who influenced them, many of them said Philip Payne does. I went and saw him in person at the, um, the last ETS conference last year as well. So here's a quote from him. He says, if every member of a group is automatically excluded from leadership or teaching in the church, simply by virtue of their gender, yes, that would necess necessarily violate equality. Um, now, I, I think honest, I, I fear I I'm going to lose people in the weeds here of, of how complicated these ideas are. But I think, again, if we just say that it's based on God's assignment, hey, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. Um, that doesn't have to be grounded in their nature or in their equality in Christ. It could just be based on their assignment. And then his argument would fall apart. So my short answer is that, is that it's it's about calling, not nature. All right. So this is another awkward one. Uh, not only does Mike uh, pull out a quote out of a larger sentence, uh, he also makes a direct response to an opponent, the mainstay of Paul's uh, influential argument over all egalitarians, which is very odd. So um, I'm going to read you the larger context of that quote that started with... Um, if it, what, he what page is this on? Okay, sorry, page 102 of Man, Woman, One in Christ. So um, the quote he started out with is, if every member of a group is automatically excluded from leadership, dot, 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 we're going to go back up. So he says, uh, Johnson grants that the essence of the gospel's proclamation of oneness or equality in Christ demanded a walk in harmony with that position. He then asks if distinction of roles of believers within that equality necessarily violates that equality. If such distinctions of roles are based on the gifts and callings of individual believers, they would not violate that equality. But if every member of a group is automatically excluded from leadership or teaching in the church simply by virtue of their gender, yes, that would necessarily violate that equality. For all the reasons listed above, it is clear that Galatians 3.28 carries important social and practical implications. Uh, ethnic, religious, socioeconomic, and gender barriers are overcome in Christ. So, uh, again, uh, I think it'll suffice to just critique uh, here what 
um, has ha occurred. Um, so uh, Payne's chapter on Galatians 3.28, chapter 4, which is one chapter in a whole string of various uh, Pauline passages he covers. So it starts on 79, and he has made his way all the way over to page 102 and lifted out a partial quote out of a longer sentence that was addressed to an opponent um, and made that the mainstay of the argument. So Paul uh, Payne responds to his opponent uh, very, you know, briefly there. And then even in the very next paragraph says, for all the reasons listed above, so all the reasons that he's been giving in his chapter and his careful exegetical work, and but no, all of that's... Um, ignored uh instead it's uh, just bypassing the yeah. bible basically okay so let, let's put yeah I, nick's uh critique is uh pertinent here so in other words uh mike has left out all their scriptural arguments to say that they're not um using scripture they're reading in their own perspectives but he can only do that by ignoring all their scriptural arguments and not giving you those and instead parsing out obscure quotes but the type of story-driven theology that says that these real horrific examples of abuse are simply the automatic result of the evils of complementarianism, they're A, I think it's false, and B, it keeps you from reading the Bible. The Bible cannot make you change your mind on these issues because you've decided and you are emotional about it and you are intense about it. So as you can see, we've moved on from pain here. Uh, so this is not his critique of pain. I mean, why not since we're splicing? But um, he's going on to a fifth point. Some say complementarian equals abuse, therefore it's bad. So that's what he's covering here. And he's, uh, again, uh, getting into saying, oh, it's, you know, emotional. And, and not everyone's going to have an exegetical treatise book. Um, you know, that's the reality. And there's going to be a variety of different chapters and books out there um, covering different topics such as abuse and other things. Um, I'm, I'm very glad that not every single book in the world is um, laying out an exegetical case for X, Y, and Z. Um, again, we need some variety in our world. Let me give you some examples of how this works. Um, one book that I'll point to, which is not very good, in, in any measure, as far as I can tell, is no offense to anybody. I'm just, I read a bunch of books and, and of, of all of them, this is this is on this is towards the bottom of the list, right? Um, but Beth Allison Barr's book, "The Making of Biblical Womanhood: How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth." Um, in the introduction to her book, she does this sort of what I'll call story-driven theology. Okay, see if you can track with me on this. The intro, she talks about how her husband was fired after he challenged church leadership on the issue of women in ministry. That's on page three. It begins with this long story of just all the hurt that has come to her and come to women. Uh, that's the framing for the whole book. Uh, this sent them away from their church with salt in their wounds, pushing them into silence about what was really going on. I'm trying to share the story kind of the way she does. She's a better storyteller than I am, so it's more intense. But they had to leave the youth they discipled for 14 years. They lost friends over these issues. She says, and I quote from her introduction, I could feel the raw edges of grief, anger, and righteous indignation rising up inside me. And I just want to say this. If you approach the topic of women in ministry with raw edges of grief, anger, and righteous indignation, you're not going to be able to let the Bible guide and direct you here. Um, you know, at the end of the day, too, it's it's a context uh, that's our own, more or less, where you have this uh, 
contrast between reason and emotions. They're, one is antithetical to the other. So, you know, if you've been brutalized or traumatized, um, really, you shouldn't be so emotional and, you know, clouding your judgment and not able to see straight. Uh, I mean, come on. Come on here. Like, again, I think the reality is that people have been through a lot and, you know, it takes a toll on folks. And, you know, and some people think that they're impervious to um, being and that they're not emotional beings. And, you know, I'm going to say that if you're able to um, bring the trauma and bring the life experience that you've had forward and um, let uh, God speak into your life in profound ways, that um, there's going to be a blessing there. Um, I think that if uh, you're maybe less uh, understanding of your own maybe biases and uh, maybe your own emotionality, that maybe they may do, be doing a number on you um, without you realizing it. So that's just speaking generally. Uh, again, I think a lot of us have this like uh, influence from the Enlightenment where we want to be the, quote, man of reason. We want to be... Um, we want context-free knowledge. Uh, we want to uh, cast off the shackles of culture and uh, hierarchies and, you know, or church hierarchies and tradition and, quote, just be able to approach the Bible or um, truth or knowledge as it really is, um, uninfluenced by these other things that might uh, cumber us. And the reality is um, we are no such people. And um, I think we should come to that reality. Um, Discovering Biblical Equality has an entire chapter on the topic. This book, again, premier, brand new, well-respected egalitarian scholarship. Chapter 28 in their book says, Complementarianism and Domestic Abuse. A social scientific perspective on whether equal but different is really equal at all. And the main argument of this chapter is that domestic abuse is the result in part of complementarian views, that complementarian views cause domestic violence. Now, again, I've, I'm probably more experienced in the realm of domestic violence than anybody who's in this written this book. I mean, I imagine I am. I've literally worked with abusers for years in in you know 52 week uh, domestic violence programs and anger management and stuff like that. And um, and so I, I mean, yeah, I very much have a heart for it and very much care about those issues. All right, so opening Discovering Biblical Equality, third edition, back up. Um, that's the chapter that he appeals to um, as evidence that this is um, not scripturally based, but based on something else. Um, he go he's taken us all the way to chapter 28. So just a reminder, part one, looking to scriptures, um, and you've got uh, chapters 2 through 12. And 12 ends on a silent witness in marriage, First Peter 3, 1 through 7. Part two is thinking it through theological and logical perspectives. And we had a chapter in there. Part three is addressing the issues, interpretive and cultural perspectives. Some interesting things in here from Cynthia Long Westfall, Elizabeth Lewis Hall, and others. And then we get to the number part four, living it out, practical implications. So now, presumably... Rather than getting the exegetical hermeneutical cases, we're going to be looking at a variety of different uh, practical applications. So, 28.6, helping the church understand biblical gender equality. 27, marriage as a partnership of equals. 28, complementarianism and domestic abuse. 29, when we were not women, race and discourse on womanhood. Chapter 30, human flourishing, global perspectives. And 31, how 
towards reconciliation, healing the schism. So, you know, there we go. Like, come on. Um, so, you know, had to, had to say that, uh, first of all, um, All right, and another thing, it uh, looks like Mike feels highly qualified uh, to speak on matters of domestic violence and uh, abuse and trauma and the like. Uh, I uh, have some doubts that he has a doctorate in psychology. Um, I don't believe he claims to have a doctorate in psychology or um, a PsyD or PhD in or psychology. Um, yeah, you know, does he have an MFT? Like, um, I don't know. Uh, I didn't see it when I was looking. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb, though, and say he doesn't have a doctor in psychology. Um, so I would recommend that you guys uh, check out a different source. Um, his name's Stephen R. Tracy. Uh, he's actually, I don't know if he still is, but for the longest time and when I read his book, he's a complementarian, um, but engages very well with egalitarians. Um, and he wrote a book that I found helpful back in the day called Mending the Soul, Understanding and Healing Abuse. So again, I, I think I would maybe go towards those sources instead. Uh, he is not uh, talking about complementarianism in his book. Um, from what I understand, if I'm remembering correctly from the past, I mean, it was maybe over 10 years ago um, that I heard about this, but he tends to not bring up uh, complementarianism or hierarchical thought when talking to people struggling with domestic abuse, uh, just because um, you have abusive characters that will latch on um, to these kind of authoritative uh, setups. Um, that's not to say that if you're a complementarian, um, you're going to be necessarily abusive or anything like that. Um, in my personal opinion, um, when you have a hierarchy that's embedded in um, the quality of femaleness, quality of race, or other factors, um, you do have an open door uh, more so for an abuse of power. Um, I think um, that's one reason um, I think our own nation has tried to counterbalance uh, powers and authorities so that absolute uh, power does not corrupt absolutely, uh, just because humans have a tendency for towards corruption. Um, so that said, um, again, I would not take Mike's word for it on what he's talking about in terms of um, abuse and uh, how his lit life experience. Yeah, I, mean, um, not, I, I not wouldn't. To be rude. I'm not downplaying that he's done good things, but like you can't have it both ways, mate. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take his route. Um, instead, um, I would like to. If you're you are complementarian, and I would direct you towards uh, Stephen Tracy. And even if you're not, um, mending the soul, understanding and healing from abuse is a, a great um, book and might give you a better perspective going forward. I suppose just at the end of the day, uh, appeals to fear aren't arguments. So abuse can be addressed without it proving egalitarian views. But if it is, but if, if abuse itself proves egalitarians are right, it bypasses the Bible, my biggest issue here. I can't think biblically if I've decided ahead of time what the answer is going to be. All right. So again, he doesn't get that. It does not, this argument does not function as a proof, but um, maybe more so as a evidence and and maybe more in the evidential category or better put the application category um so you could also take this as a call for change uh within certain uh complementarian camps um but yeah again he doesn't realize this isn't a a proof and any any periphery argument or application that he decides to assign as the main argument and totality of the argument and ignore all the actual bible stuff um, so, you know, again, it would have been interesting if he 
actually made that the main thing rather than try to make these other things um, their main arguments when they're not. This is the real problem with this. We've decided what God has to say. Next, we find a way for God to say it, which is, I think, why a lot of egalitarian arguments are really stretched. And I mean, you'll see, guys, I wanted to be egalitarian. I lost a lot of respect for the side. Not the people exactly, but for that position. Now, there's three things I'm not going to do. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, we're getting close. We're getting close to being done. Each video is going to be different lengths depending on the topic. But um, three things I won't do. I will not submit scripture to culture. This is extremely tempting. I want to build bridges. Some of you might, you know, might be someone watching who's thinking like, well, I'm not a Christian, but if they don't, if they don't have women in leadership in every capacity, then I, I don't want to be one. I, I really want to build bridges with you. But I'm not going to play those games. I'm going to let scripture be scripture. I'm not going to submit it to culture. And I'm not going to do it on either way. I, I don't want to submit it to uh, me having been raised in a complementarian environment as a Christian. I mean, not as a child, but since I came to Christ. And I also don't want to be looking at the world. I mean, I think something like 80% of the churches in my area have women pastors. I live in Southern California, guys. Okay, so... Both sides of culture are pulling me in different directions. I just don't want to do that. I won't submit scripture to culture. I also won't play games with polemic or moral pressure. I just want to have an accurate understanding of biblical passages. So you can expect the whole series to be a lot easier to listen to than most other stuff on this topic because they just load it with so much like intense uh, you know, stuff. Um, it should be easy to listen to. We're going to do Bible study is what we're going to do. I'm also not going to be God's PR department. Here's the third thing. I'm not going to be God's PR department. Um, there's too much concern that we have for making Christianity palatable that causes us to not express things the way God does in, in his word. And we miss then the focus of his word. Uh, we avoid certain truths and we fail to confront false beliefs because we're trying to make it palatable. This video series is for people who want to submit to God. So that's the price of entry. So a, a little bit of uh, lived experience here. Most of the churches in Southern California are, at least in the area that we operate in the p places I've applied to, I'm talking about the evangelical churches. I'm not talking about mainline churches or progressive churches, churches that would hire someone like me, basically. I, I, I find it hard to believe that 80% of them in the area, and Mike's not far from us, are uh, staffed by women in ministry because no. women in ministry is already, you know, you even find the most egalitarian denominations or progressive denominations, it's still about 75-80% are ordained men versus 15-20% you know, ordained women. I think 10 or 15% might be a very high number. Um, I seldom see a woman actually in a pastoral role that's yeah. not uh, childcare or family ministries oriented. Um, not that they don't. Um, like uh, one of the last churches we were serving at had a female uh, senior pastor. Right. But uh, a point that I think Mike... Um, really misses on this and I, I think it is endemic of how he'll approach this not only in the next videos but i was approached it in this video is the idea of culture um it's i find he, basically mike admits he was uh raised not i don't i'm not going to speak about his upbringing but he his faith journey specifically was in complementarianism it's in the air he breathes it is at, it was at the school he attended you know calvary chapel uh, uh bible college i believe it was um his church is egalitarian or the church he was at. He's talked about complementarianism. He supported complementarianism, um, despite some of his reticence about some of it. Um, this is, it's his worldview. It's his entire worldview. And so if you, uh, if you engage with that, if you breathe the air long enough, you adapt to it, you become aware, you don't become aware of what you're breathing. And so when you hear a view that you've never heard before and are already kind of implicitly hostile to, I'm not talking hostile like you hate, but you know, you're not prone to necessarily, uh, a, 
uh, give it the time of day that you would, you know, a view that you hold or you think is already orthodox or what have you, you're going to have a hermeneutic of suspicion regarding egalitarian writings. And I think that's important to, to recognize for our listeners, uh, especially um, those who might be more neutral on this question, that what you bring to the text, uh, Mike is essentially demanding that you are a tabula rasa when it comes to this. He's going to teach you, he's going to challenge you, he's going to do all these things, but he himself was not a tabula rasa on this. When your entire background, your entire ministry, your entire church, your entire denomination thinks a certain way and articulates the gospel and complementarianism in a very specific way, and it's and it works in the local church every single way, it, it's one of those, I just find it very hard to believe that you can just put all that away. You know, and I'm happy to see him come out more of a soft complementarian, at least in terms of his attitude. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think we can kind of just bypass... Uh, I don't think he can bypass the Bible in the way he's kind of doing it with this. And I and I, I would encourage him, you know, if he ever listens to this or anyone else, to do some more careful reflection on what he's brought to the text with him in the same way he's demanding that of other people. You know, and that's the mark of a good teacher, a good communicator. You speak with clarity, but you also hold yourself to the same thing you demand of others, especially in the way you've often kind of articulated that sort of thing. So I, I, I would hope that he would actually be encouraged by that, even if I think it's um, detrimental to his actual case and presentation of the evidence. Yeah. And just to summarize, maybe we're, you know, we're at regarding this video. And again, we'll go through the other ones, too, eventually. Uh, but, you know, number one, I he seems to arrive at the disposition and direction he started in in his conclusions. So he started with a default of complementarianism in his view, and he wanted to be more open, and it seemed like he ended up there. So there we go. He's a complementarian and maybe ended up a little bit more open-ended, but still where he started, essentially. Um, Over the course of a few months of research. Yeah. Um, fundamentally, he does not perceive or portray egalitarian arguments. So much of his characterizations of egalitarian arguments look like standard mischaracterizations by complementarians. And again, it's kind of, he's moved through um, chapters in evidential and exegetical material. He just moved past all of it until he found something that looked kind of like what he expected and then clipped it. Court ir- mining. Yeah. Irregardless of context. Um, what this could be a bit of is kind of, uh, so when I uh, grade undergrad papers on like, let's just say they have to analyze, they have to watch or listen to a debate. They have to, um, understand what both sides are saying and their, um, opening arguments, um, and their refutations of each and then give their own analysis of the debate. Um, usually my, you know, students are pretty good. They'll catch all the main points of what's being said. Um, sometimes the analysis at the end needs some work, but you know, they're usually able to get the main thing every now and then you've got that one student that just got completely fixated on one thing someone said, and just don't understand anything about what, what the rest of what they're, that one person like a dog with a bone, a dog got a bone and say, Oh, it's all I can think about. Yeah. And then they start, um, characterizing everything else through that one lens or that one thing that bothered them. And then at the end of the day, they turn in a paper that doesn't have any of the main points and I have to give them a bad grade because they didn't really, um, put any of the content there. Uh, Maybe they'll catch one or two things and mischaracterize it. And then that's the end. Um, so to me, it looks like, sort of like someone had a paper to write um, and started with their, oh, I'm going to argue this, and then quickly mined through a bunch of books 
um, and then picked out things that sort of sounded like what they expected that they thought would match their um, point that they wanted to come across. That's what it looks like to me. Um, I'm not saying that's necessarily an intentional thing, but that is kind of a common way people approach research, uh, frankly, and it it looks like that's what happened here. Um, the other thing is, again, he regularly takes a scholar or other person's response um, to complementarian arguments and twists it to be the entirety or the main case, um, or basically some argument or principle they hold over and against scripture. So it's kind of very tunnel vision and dislodged. And he also uh, is is very prone to assume really bad motives on the part of people that he is already predisposed or predestined perhaps <laughs> to disagree with. And so the way he characterizes Beth Allison Barr's book is, is really unfortunate. How he characterizes others is really unfortunate. Um, his commentary on domestic violence and abuse is, uh, I get his heart in the matter, but it comes across as incredibly tone deaf at best and really, really not healthy at, 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 at worst. Um, and that could be, he does it live. And so, you know, we grant him grace on that, you know, sometimes, you know, as I'm prone to do overstate or misstate or what have you. But, um, those sorts of, those are the sorts of issues I see with, um, how he's constructed this thing how um, the problems we have, I think, are really insurmountable for how he's going to go moving forward. Because if you get the foundations wrong, if you get your hermeneutic wrong, if you don't challenge the very use of language and role of logic in your debate, when you come to the biblical text, you're going to get a skew in the same way. If you build your foundation wrong, the house is going to look really funny and inevitably probably collapse. Yep. And again, if you um, are a victim of domestic violence or something else, you know, reach out for help. Um, you know, they're you know, it, psychology and, you know, getting a counselor is a good way to go. Um, and, you know, I just want to tell you the Bible has good news for you. And if you like what you've heard here, um, be sure to share it with folks. Um, make sure to like the video or share the podcast or subscribe or what have you. Uh, we're sorry this this one took so long. Uh, part of it was me being lazy and exhausted and all of that. Um, but uh when you have to engage with, you know, claims and evidence and arguments and books and, arg and, and, and anthologies, especially when they're taken out of context, take, you know, and you have to set the record straight or nuance things. Those things just unfortunately take a lot of time. And so Mike said he wanted people to engage with them, push back sometimes. Yeah, I think that's noble. Problem is that takes a very long time uh, to just kind of do because not everyone has the amount of time that Mike has or we have or whoever has. Yeah, we, uh, we've got a toddler and obviously I've got my day job. And and I'm looking for a day job and doing part-time day job stuff. So Yeah, so, you know, we've, we've got our hands full. So we'll try to listen to the other one carefully and recontextualize it for you guys in a timely manner. But... Uh, no, no guarantees when there's toddlers in the picture. Exactly. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for giving us the time of day. Uh, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May his face shine upon you. And go in the love of Christ knowing that you are uh, a son of God, a daughter of God, and you are called to great things by the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, cheers.